Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR. Reality check radio. Rational discussion. Common sense and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. Another incredible show ahead for you this week. My first guest is Mike Nainer, documentary filmmaker and producer of The Reformers, a film cataloguing the grievance studies affair, the greatest hoax on academia this century. If you've not heard of this story, grab a coffee, settle in. It's a doozy. And I then welcome back Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party, and we'll finally talk politics, free speech, and what the election could look like for those smaller parties. Marty is back from across the ditch and will join me for Media Matters, and we'll talk about some of the observations from his trip and, of course, what's gone on in politics in the week since he's been gone. And I'll finish things up with our Woke News of the Week. Uh, I'll also let you know a little bit more about some of our new members-only content coming soon for RCR, but first, time for some of your feedback. Uh, For Marty and I, first up, I thoroughly enjoyed your Media Matters segment. I'm listening to the episode from July 19 on Monday 24th, and I had to laugh my head off about Kitty Allen bleating about the hard times she's been having, knowing that she was arrested and charged last night, and that was from Bron. Uh, You're welcome, Bronwyn. I know that she is at the top of the agenda coming up in Media Matters for Marty and I, because of course all of that happened whilst he was away. This is from Jill. Absolutely love the wide variety of shows available. There's definitely no need to be uninformed about anything now after listening to your amazing forum. Thanks for everything that you do, and I do not take it for granted. And she also asked for the link for James Fishback from the Woke Debate Baiting System in the United States. And I know that Liz hooked you up with that. Um, If you've not heard that interview, I did it a few months back, and it's a young man called James Fishback, and he has created a parallel debating system called Incubate Debate in Florida. And it is just absolutely taking off. He is the most eloquent 
young man. And it just shows you the importance of creating parallel structures. If something's broken, do you just build something new? And that and that is what is gone and done. And you can check that out over at realitycheck.radio on our replays. Next up from the text machine, hey Marie, great but appalling story at the same time. I've got to say, if you slightly separate therapists, it spells the rapist. Mm, The rapist of the brain, indeed. Flip, that will be in regards to the interview I did with Rebecca Hampton. This one again from the text machine, an absolutely fantastic discussion with Rebecca Marie. Thank you so much for bringing this important discussion to air. Love your work. Please continue shining the light in these dark places. Take care, Liza. Marie, did Rebecca say her daughter was offered a double mastectomy paid for by ACC? Question mark. Stacey. Yes, she did, Stacey. So that is Rebecca's account. Apparently so. This one's from Alan. At my high school in the late 1960s, at least five of our teachers were known pedophiles. There may have been more. We had around 40 teachers. So the proportion was quite high. I wonder what the percentage is now. I'm sure an attraction to children may be a driver for a sizable proportion of those in this profession. Primary school was probably the worst. Just a thought, Alan. Yeah, it is a thought, Alan, actually. Ah, great. Keith, I knew you would I couldn't remember the name of a film that I was talking about in the conversation that I had. Uh, The controversial young cheerleaders movie was called Cuties. Thank you, Keith. I could not remember the name of the film. Uh, Marie, men in women's sports is insane. Bigger, stronger, faster, not to mention the changing room aspects. Stand up and speak out. That's from Lee. Yes, and I've got a wee news stories about that later on. Also from Peter, excellent and relevant discussion this morning. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Peter. Thanks to you guys so much. You are an amazing, truly appreciate all your efforts. And from Nick, excellent interview with Gloria Marie, you rock. You have carved your name into my heart and mind like so many great journalists, including the likes of Katie Hopkins and Lauren Southern. Keep it up. Keep exposing the cult. Gloria is correct. This has been going on for hundreds of years. Corrupt people in government is stepping up their efforts now. We as good, awake, stable and normal God-fearing parents have to take our roles seriously and protect those who can't protect themselves. So true, Nick. And bless your heart for calling me a journalist. I'm actually just a gobby lady who they let talk on the wireless. It's a week, but I do appreciate appreciate your comments. Tracy said, absolutely love your content and counterculture show. Had a fabulous, intelligent interview style with a vast depth of knowledge and a wonderful radio voice. Thank you, Tracy. And from Rachel, really interesting to hear Rebecca's story on RCR. Most helpful to many will be the resources, including books and podcasts you mentioned. I've recently finished Helen Joyce's book, Trans. I interviewed Helen last week or two weeks ago, and I'm now reading Transpositions, Personal Journeys Through Gender Criticism by Sarah Fillmore. You can get it in the Kindle ebook and the physical book through Amazon. This book is a collection of narratives from people who've been affected by the trans cult, and I highly recommend it. After I finish this, I'll be reading spiked podcast Brendan O'Neill's new book, The Heretic Manifesto. It looks very promising. Do keep doing what you do, and I like the good non-conformist. I've completed my submission for the Defend Free Speech website. Hey, Rachel, thank you so much for doing that. Yes, that closed a couple of days ago. Um, Oh, good reading list. I really do appreciate that, Rachel. So lots of tremendous feedback, and we love receiving it. Thank you so much. It really does uh, put a spring in our steps that we are all heading in the right direction. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. 
Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. It's now time to head on back down to Aotearoa Farm to see how the animals are getting on. Much has transpired. What a week on Aotearoa Farm. The election has placed a strain on all on the farm. The weekly spectre of pigs performing poorly is growing tiresome for many in the wider flock and herds on the farm. And the constant repainting of rules is now just largely ignored at best or disobeyed at worst as the animals fathom what, where and how they're supposed to be. Chippy Pork is appearing quite glum. Rumours of ructions between him and Squealer Robinson and Piggy Parker have those inside the farmhouse rattled with all the comings and goings. Word is seeping out to the other styes and wallows that things are not at all good in the hood. The vet sheds are failing with now sick animals and offspring waiting longer for treatment. Feed costs have skyrocketed and the tracks between paddocks and pastures are in dire states of disrepair. In an effort to cheer up the team, a popular pig is postponing their retirement to help out his mate, Silly Faku, who is in a bit of a sticky wicket after crashing the farm tractor into a truck. Also, a new list has been circulated to let all the farmhouse pigs know where they stand. The sheep have been keeping busy chasing around all the election contenders, hoping to get a scoop. Well, not too big a scoop. One wouldn't want to get our feed cut by squealer after all, and reporting just enough to keep the bulk of the farmyard placated and pliant. Before Napoleon's departure, she funded a new department outside of the farmhouse, a Ministry of Truth, to oversee all the farmyard chatter and lord over the farm what speech is correct or not. Run by a confident pair, Kitty Kate and Sanji Stoat, who specialise in making sure the sheep stay on message and any other farm animals, especially those ornery avians, who dare utter anything other than the doctrines from the farmhouse, are applied with suitable disparaging labels. Truth is a serious business, and the more and more frequent deviations from the farmhouse doctrine is known to ruffle Kitty Kate. She has been seen partaking in excess grooming to help cleanse herself from those who don't share her holy mission. Meanwhile, Sanji Snote snarls wide-eyed at anything and anyone who places a paw or claw out of line. This could prove problematic for our pair of truth polices. Winnie Ben has announced, if elected back to the big house, an inquiry into the efforts, or lack thereof, of those running the farm during the Great Sickness, the foundation of which the Truth Ministry was founded. He is still packing out barns and outhouses across the wider farm, and in chicken coops, the news of Winnie's words have raised things from a cluck to a cackle, with latest polls giving Winnie a shot for the return to the hallowed walls of the farmhouse. Chin up, Chippy. Things could get better next week. Or failing that, could someone get the poor ginger pork or a little pork-on-pork action with a sausage roll? That always seems to cheer him up. Make sure you stay tuned next week for more of the escapades down at Aotearoa Farm, exclusively here on RCR. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio/members. 
Good morning. Welcome to Reality Jeff Radio. You're with Marie. This is Counterculture. And joining me now, all the way from Germany, and I've gotten up late. I'm really sorry about that, is Mike Nania, writer and filmmaker. I'm just, I'm dying to know the genesis of how an Aussie gets himself into Germany and a little bit about you before we dive into the work that you've been doing, which I've been following you for a wee while and I'm quite excited to have you here. All right. All right. Well, how do I get to Germany? Well, my, my sister lives here with her husband and I have been nomadic for a while. And so I tend to turn up on my siblings doorsteps from time to time and, and, uh, and live near them. And so I've, I've been living here for, uh, for a little while, um, mm-hmm. trying to get the, the visa thing working in the Northern hemisphere because there's more opportunity in, in, in yeah. film, I guess. Yeah. Look, Australia and New Zealand over the last few years have not been the easiest places to live or work. And Agreed, yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes you've got to take your opportunities when you can get them, really. Yes, so yes. What's the body of work that you've been doing over the last few years? And then we're going to dive into the reformers because I think okay. for listeners that do not know the story, this is going to blow their minds. Well, there's a few different ends here because it's been going for a long time. But I, I made a film called Digilante, which was about a, I guess it was a racist bus incident that took place on in Melbourne. And I filmed it and made a video and the video went viral. And then um, the, the film I made about this incident, this series of incidents that happened, was my experience through the media circus around this event, this viral racist bus event. And just the, the, just the feelings and the thoughts that are involved when you're in the middle of something and then everyone's talking about it, everyone's reporting on it, and um, you're in the middle of some strange media circus, I guess is the best way to put it. And so that, that was my first film, and that was kind of my introduction to how far away, uh, I guess, themes of race and uh, racism were taken away from anything practical or or even rational in the media mm. space and how how crazy that can go. What year was that? Uh, that was 2012 when that happened. And yes. I was so working really? in, yeah, yeah. I was working in, um, in news media at the time and in the arts and film. I started noticing what has now become known the great, as the great awakening, the, um, the kind of ideological capture of these media industries and arts industries and to begin with I, I just felt that my morality was being policed in a in a kind of unintuitive way for me I wanted to understand what it was because <laughs> everyone around me especially in the film industry had to comport to a certain set of rules and uh in order to get funds you had to you know have the the right makeup of identities on your on your team you needed to comport to certain storytelling and you'd get notes that were, that, were, that were crazy from my perspective. And so I thought that if, if I'm being forced to comport to this thing, I'd better figure out what it is because it's not intuitively moral for, for me. So I started investigating and started uh, hanging out with activists and and protesters and figuring out what this, this strange language was, you know, terms like uh, cis-normativity, intersectionality. There's a there's a kind of lexicon that goes along with this 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 movement that was moving into all of the the spaces around me. And so, I followed that upstream to the university because a lot of these people had read a certain set of books or been in through certain courses. The most the most kind of how would you say I guess uh, zealous. Uh, people uh, that were were pushing this 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 ideology they all they all spoke the same they all had yeah. shared 
a shared canon that they read and courses yeah. even that they went through. And it was quite obvious. Like you, you yeah. can follow this stuff up, upstream to the university quite easily. Yeah. And I ended up in a lot of identity studies courses, just looking through the materials, talking to uh, gender studies scholars, sitting in on lectures, trying to understand what it was. And I did find that just asking questions, it was quite a hostile environment. They didn't take to questions very well. It's but, very, you know, doctr- that, very doctrinal, isn't it? That's the one thing very, that I've always found, yeah. very doctrinal. And yes, these, I'm yes. assuming that these were people that are what James, which we're going to talk about James a little bit later, but it's what James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose called critical theory. So it's that kind of really yes. Frankenstein sort of love child between neo-Marxism and postmodernism and deep yes, sort of yes. French philosophers into this modern sort of Modern kind of uh, hydra, really. mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, zombie or whatever the hell it is. It's, so, how did you yeah, find yeah. that? I mean, as somebody who is sort of wanting to be curious, yeah, and find about this with a genuine open mind, did you kind of feel like that you were sitting in lectures and it was invasion of the body snatchers, or was it? No, it it was very light on. Like it's 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 hard to see what it is when you don't know what to look for. And so a lot, a lot of it, it was just strange language and, and concepts, really. And when I say it was hostile, I, I guess it wasn't, it wasn't like get out, but it was, it was, I guess I'm a six foot two bald brown man. I guess the brown probably helps, but just like rocking up to a, to a gender studies class is probably a bit strange, but yeah, it, it didn't, it didn't feel like open dialogue. It didn't feel like, you know, say, say if I go to any other, um, I show an interest in any other scholars field they're usually pretty keen to talk to me as a filmmaker they they're uh, they're very interested mm. and so i just felt like there were buzzes and things like that that i was touching and it wasn't hostile as in um you know i wasn't going to be cancelled or anything like that but it was um do the work uh, Mike. do the work yeah Bring, yeah touchy yeah. touchy yeah. yeah tense it might, might be the way to put it so you sort of did all this research so is this how you hooked up with peter bogosian it is. So that, I guess that was phase one. And then phase two was to start to speak to people who were critical of it. And so I think the first person I spoke to was uh, a scholar in Melbourne who I won't name because I don't think he'll, well, I know that he won't like it. He, he studied Western civilization. I went to sit with him and I, there was, it was an interesting moment, I guess, when we went to his office we were talking loudly about these things and he was getting uncomfortable like a lot of people uh, when I'm asking these questions for some reason. And he said, hey, let's let's get out of here. Let's go to a cafe down the road. And as we were walking to the cafe around the road, I was, I was wondering why. And he's just like, I was just, I don't want anyone to hear us. And I just felt, mm-hmm. I knew that I, there was a film somewhere here because if there's a, there's a kind of academician that's, that's, you know, usually they're, they're quite obsessive and they, they love the chance of, of about talking about these things. And he was, you know, I guess, I guess passionate about his position, but to be scared, to be overheard in, in an academic environment, I just knew that there was something there. And these kinds of experiences happened again and again with people taking me off their official university email address to write more openly off of that, which, which I thought was strange. I just kept digging and digging and there, there is, uh, this was quite a while ago actually now, I, I guess it was probably, it was even, it might've even been 2016 when this, when I was starting to do this. There's this, there was at that time, I think a lot more people are open about their position on this stuff now, but at that time there were, there was something I called the intellectual underground where it was a, a collection of, I guess, journalists, uh, academics, all kinds of intellectuals all in the world who could see this thing that was mutating inside the university system. 
And while they wouldn't really talk publicly about it, some people did, but most of them didn't, they would be very interested in having these private conversations. And so I ended up inside this private conversation network, eventually bumped into Peter Bogosian and his friend James Lindsay, and they were very public about their position at the time because they don't, just their, their personalities, they, they, never, they never keep quiet about anything. They had a plan, and the plan was to attack in some sense, maybe I guess expose, but it, it did come across as an attack, the disciplines that I'd been looking at, these identity studies disciplines. So you meet Peter, you meet James. And Pete has a plan. I'm talking to Pete, actually, hopefully in a few weeks. So we've cool. we've been getting the dates. So Pete has a plan. Cover this in the film The Reformers. What was Pete's plan? Pete's plan was to submit hoax articles to, I guess, high-ranking academic journals in the in the identity studies field. From his perspective, and I think he's right now that 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 I've looked into this stuff as as much as I have, that is the genesis point of the work ideology. And, and so, he can get away with it because he was at that time. What was the position he was holding at that time? Uh, he's a ph- philosophy professor. He was a, yeah at Port, at Portland State University, at Portland State University, which is yeah. like. Yeah. The you know the absolute epicenter of woke on the west coast of the United well, I guess, States. Yeah, I guess so. He was seeing it. Yeah, yeah. There, there's something about the Pacific Northwest and the universities over there that is yeah. is quite that way inclined. And so he was seeing this great awakening that I was also mapping in Australia around him, probably tenfold. I think uh, it's it's it is it's the mecca. It's a woke mecca there, there in Portland. So did this genesis. For this idea, did it come before or after the Evergreen State College fiasco? It was similar timing. It was around right. the same time. I think he would have been coming up with this idea as, yes, Brett was Evergreen. getting. So for those who aren't aware, the Evergreen State College uh, situation is Brett, Wein- Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Haying, had what he thought was full academic freedom as a ten- both of them as tenured professors, only to find out that when you've got an administration that bend to the will of very woke student body, things can actually get really, really ugly, which I think is another whole, I mean, gosh, that's another whole episode. And you've done some work in this area. I know Benjamin Boyce has done some work in this area. But if you want to look up Evergreen State College, that will give you, and if you followed a lot of the COVID stuff, you'll know Brett's work. So let's park that over there. So Pete's got his idea. He's with James. How did the whole, let's film this whole thing, and well, turn this into a body of work. How did that come about? I was looking for a film. The whole the whole reason for my uh, investigation was to find a film somewhere. And so I, usually there's three major ingredients to a good documentary film, in my mind anyway. And one of them is the, you need a landscape, a, a kind of high-level philosophical reason to be um, looking in a certain area. So the this this is this problem within academia to me was a was a was a very very interesting landscape volatile landscape and so that's that's good for a film and then secondly you need characters and uh peter and jim are most certainly characters they're quite brash and interesting and they think very differently and so then i had the characters and then they had the plan so the third ingredient is, uh, of a good documentary is 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 a goal of some of some sort and if you've got those ingredients, and then uh, then it's more or less you've got the kind of the basic ingredients for a documentary. And so it made sense to get over to Portland and see what Pete was doing, and then 
film the process. Mm. So this all started sort of around 2017, 2018. So the whole concept is Peter and James came up with an idea of writing a whole series of bogus mm-hmm. academic papers and see if they could get them published into tier one journals using pseudonyms. And actually, I think they had, they actually managed to bring in a another friend that wasn't connected to them yeah, well, well like the the project developed because I guess I guess I came along during its early conception. So along the way, the project developed, and they they fig- figured out the best way to do it. So to start, they had a friend because submitting to academic journals, you need um, uh, I guess I guess an academic name and credentials and things like that to just come across as valid as when you're submitting papers um, just in case the editor looks up your name or something like that. And so they started off with a friend of Peter's who was a retired academic from Florida and he had, he donated his name to the project. And so they started off writing underneath, underneath his name, but they started getting a lot of rejections and Baldwin is the guy is uh, Dr. Richard Baldwin was the was the professor that they were using to submit the articles and he was a white man and so to open up the identities of the names that they could submit papers under um, they then built fake research institutes and made websites and had all these uh, <laughs> it was a probably 12 different identities that they could submit papers under but having having these identities they got they had they were able to submit under the identities of homosexual people black women women full stop and so that that, that kind of helps the cause when you're publishing in the in the identity studies fields and so the, mm. yeah that, i guess that was that was a big change in the project that i think helped them along their way quite a bit yeah. So then they started to get papers published. Now I'm going to read some of the titles of these papers out because when I first <laughs> stumbled across all of this, which was yeah. right at the very beginning, because you did a film, I remember there was a recording and it was all of them together and they were at Brett and Heather's house. Yes. And, yes yeah. And yes. that was, that came out about, I think it was about 2020, 2019, it was, probably, it was, it was before that, it was 2018. 2018, was it? Yeah. yeah. So that's when yeah. I first you came on my radar was way back then. Yes, some, right, some, right. So some of these papers that they submitted, so this, this first one I know did very well, was Human Reactions to Rape Culture and Queer Performativity, Performativity in Urban Dog Parks in Portland, Oregon. Yes. So the, the theory behind that was, uh, <laughs> and the summary was, this paper claims that dog parks are rape-condoning spaces and a place of rampant canine rape culture. It says that human <laughs> attitudes to both of these problems can be best understood through black feminist criminology and suggests ways to train men out of sexual violence and bigotry that they're prone to. Now, any sane person would read that and go, WTF? The actual paper is even even worse. It's it's madness from start to finish. And they actually won an award for this. I guess this paper was published and then they were doing a special edition of the journal, which is Feminist Geography. It was one of the leading feminist geography journals. It was doing a special edition. They said, you, this is a great study. We want to feature it in our special edition, which is, you know, tantamount to an award. So that's, that's what happened with that one. But um, it was essentially a fake study where a feminist geographer went to dog parks in Portland 
And then every, every day, I think it was for every day, every day, every day, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Except for the heavy rain, but for 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 a long, long time. And then would count the dog humping incidents in the dog park, take down how the owners of the dogs behaved, check the dog's genitals to to make sure what gender it is, and then make wild assumptions about what that means. For for some reason, they could conclude that that, that this was. <laughs> That uh, also nightclubs were also rape canoning spaces out of this this strange this this strange study that they did. So it was it was wild from start to finish, just random random assumptions and uh, and broken data and all, all all sorts of horrible stuff that should have been caught out because the peer review process is uh, professional academics testing research material to make sure that it's rigorous that's that's what the process is about and it's it's the highest level of academic work you can do so it's the highest i guess seal of approval that we can we can give on research and yeah they clearly should should have understood something was up but instead they gave it an award one of my favorite scenes of the entire film was when they'd been out and uh, Helen and Pete had you know had imbibed and they were feeling yeah, fairly few, relaxed and chill. Yes, yes. And and Pete, Pete, if you've ever watched any video with Peter, he's he's a very kind of loose as a goose dude. You know, like he oh, always yeah. sort of appears in a state of full Extreme confidence. And yeah. yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And the man has a prodigious uh, bathrobe collection, but that's and I'm going to <laughs> he, hit him up about does. that. Another, yes. Yeah, when I talk yeah. to him. But he's just such a chill dude. And so they're both chilled. They'd had a lovely night out, and the email comes in that this paper had been accepted. The joy of, oh my gosh, this project is coming to fruition, fueled, fueled yes. by a night out. Yes. And it was just infectious. And you just think to yourself, you could see this moment, this eureka moment of, shit, we're doing it. It's happening. We're doing it. It's, We've it's, got it. It's, it's got it. It's our first out. paper. Yeah, yeah, this is possible. I guess it was that was the was the main thing because they had gotten a few few rejections, which which is to be expected. But I think by that time they understood they understood the ideology better and how to work it. And because because these these are these are leading journals, to not actually be a, an, an academician in that field, it's brash to an almost ridiculous point. Anyone that's in academia would would understand. It's, it's This isn't publishing for, I guess, an opinion piece or something like that. This is like the highest level of, of academic work. And so to come from outside of that field and expect to publish in the high, in the highest ranking journals with uh, with no background in it is is a really big thing. And so there is this there was this this thing hanging over the project all along that this might not work and this yeah. might just and because I was filming I told them that if I film then I'm going to release something. So I mm. at one point I thought maybe I was filming a, making a film about career suicide. <laughs> and <laughs> so then there was a level of relief and and joy at how funny this thing was and. Yeah, that scene mm. that scene came together nicely. My camera work is terrible because I was also drunk, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I made it work. <laughs> no, look, it, it was just it, the whole thing was really, really well. So I'm talking to Mike Mania. The, the film we're talking about is The Reformers. A couple of other papers that I just want to touch on because I think it was seven in total that got published yes, in the end. Yes, yep. yeah. So th- th- these are the two which I just loved. Going through the back door challenging straight male homo hysteria and transphobia through receptive penetrative sex toy use. 
The summary is a paper that's suspicious that straight men really anally self-penetrate. I'm sorry, listeners, if you're having your breakfast, <laughs> using sex, to- sex toys. And this is likely due to the fear of being a homosexual. And, and, and homo hysteria was something, it was a construct that Pete made up, was it not? Well, trans hysteria was. So homo oh, trans hysteria, hysteria. Was, 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 a, was an existing um, construct inside their literature. And <sighs> and they were they were playing around with this and then one of the peer reviewers said oh wait you're talking about trans hysteria you should you should develop that and then so they developed this construct called trans hysteria which is it's it's, it's just a crazy construct really it's um it's got a a nugget of truth in it but all but like a lot of this stuff there's some nugget of of social truth in in what they're talking about but then they just blow it well out of proportion and so they generated one of these kind of almost viral constructs that 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 have that you know happen within the field. And I think the genius stroke with all of these papers, the absolute genius stroke, was taking a chapter out of Hitler's Mein Kampf and changing all references to to Jews and changing that into a feminist context. Is that right? So I think the yes, paper, Our yes. Struggle is My Struggle, Solidarity Feminism is an intersectional replay to neoliberal and choice. So they completely changed that around. Yep. And that, to me, just completely typifies how ridiculous all of this is when you have something that is so universally hated. Yeah. That all of a sudden when you take away the stigma of of the piece of writing and the emotion and everything attached to it and then you apply it back into the into the mill the academic mill i mean what yes. did, i think Pete coined the term was it academic laundering like money laundering uh, these papers uh, how, how would you explain that no that was, that was Brett Weinstein he, oh, was that he, Brett he Weinstein? calls it idea idea laundering you know as i said a couple of times now the academic world is where we look to for knowledge and so if something's gone through the academic peer review process journalists politicians all all the kind of elite governance structures and and i guess uh, minds look to that body of knowledge that goes through the university and through through the research processes there as what would you say it's 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 solid that that is our knowledge. That's the bedrock of what we build. You know, our liberal democracies are top of, and so the idea of idea laundering is to have a kind of deranged, I guess, or ideological perspective, or something that's politically expedient, something that that kind of justifies your political action or your political worldview, and then to to put that through the academic process in some sense to launder it as he's saying, for it to come out the other side as academically stamped knowledge, then all of a sudden you've got a little bit of a junket going on where you can you can give crazy ideas or, or very politically biased ideas the, uh, the kind of look of truth or look of, of hard research when it mm. is anything but. It's just, it's just political is, opinions, I guess. This is a concept, though, that is wound out not only across academia, I mean, it's wound out across science, it's wound out across medicine, as long as you can actually appear to take a piece of knowledge and have it justified or verified by an expert or a peer, yeah. even though the fundamental basis of that knowledge is deeply flawed or even blatantly incorrect, it doesn't matter. Yep. Because yeah. everyone else says it's okay, or you you know can refer back to something that else that is blatantly incorrect or infactual. Yeah. 
So it is. It just well, shows the, the, you the whole the whole kind of the, the the DEI movement that's moving into the corporate world and a lot of our institutional lives. The the backing of that, the status that 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 allows that to move through all our all our kind of prestigious institutions is that it comes from a body of work that's took taken place inside the university yeah and so you've got this political campaign that's that's uh ideologically will derange from my point of view but even you know even less than that to be kind to it you would say it was bias um and then all of a sudden you've got these people who are justified to tell everyone how to think and feel i guess because they they come out of the university as social experts they're credentialed as social experts, and so they come to meddle in our social world wherever they can. That's often through workplaces, through HR, through these uh, DEI um, projects, through the arts as well. There's a lot of there's, there's a lot of this kind of meddling in the arts, and that's the kind of how I ended up in it. And you trace the epistemological supply chain up to where where these ideas are coming from, and where is this status coming from, and all of a sudden you start looking at studies about dogs humping in a park in Portland, <laughs> making wild assumptions about it. <laughs> so the paper, that particularly that Portland paper, that was the one, an investigation started. So the Wall Street Journal, yes. a reporter <clears throat> sort of caught wind. And I think mm-hmm. this is actually, from my perspective, this is, I think, where you guys were incredibly clever because that journalist started sniffing around. So... Uh, the come clean, the um, mm. yaha gotcha moment. Was it, yeah, it yeah. was about to happen. And I think how you guys constructed that was genius. Thank so, you. Yeah, well, it was. It was really incredibly clever because it allowed you to get out ahead of what you knew inevitably was going to happen, having gone through these pylons and cancellations and how the behaviour model of these mobs yep. work so you actually created a process to get out ahead of the mob so just talk talk me through that there's the story element and then there's a the plan element so the story element was that the dog park paper had been published so it was out there in the public because the, the, the academic process is very slow and so we had other papers or they had i wasn't really writing papers but they had a bunch of papers going through the peer review process at the time and the dog park paper had finally been published and put out into the public a twitter profile that is dedicated to exposing bogus scholarship found it and then started making fun of it and because the paper was so absolutely so insane and funny and weird it gained a lot of traction on the internet. And so a lot of, uh, I guess, centre-right and right-wing journalists were very interested in this because the universities are a point of interest for for right-wing journalists now because of the stuff that we've been talking about. And so several journalists started to poke and prod at this paper, which was written by Helen Wilson, which was a fake, one of the fake names that that Pete had created so they could write papers under. And tugging at that thread, the wheels, I guess the wheels started to come off the whole project because uh, they weren't Helen Wilson. It was James Lindsay's inbox, which, which, which all these emails were coming to. So James's inbox started getting hammered by emails from the journal, from uh, journalists. And so one of those journalists was a, a very, very clever. She was, she was well-versed 
in the kinds of stuff we, we were looking at. And this is very, very complicated stuff. So you couldn't really go out with any journalists. You, you, you'd want someone who'd, who'd understood what was happening in all this. But one of the, one of the journalists, Gillian Melchor of the Wall Street Journal, had re- already written a few articles down this, this, uh, this line. And so she seemed perfect to break the story. James came clean to her and gave her all the um, all the information and as she was working through it and in, in and interviewing them I th- it was clear that the, the, the story even though Jillian was was kind of well versed in this stuff there was there was a big gaps in in the their ability to communicate what the hell they were up to and it was it was it could have gone either way we weren't sure if she was going to write positively or negatively and we, so we we decided, all right, well, we're going to have to get involved in this media release because she could write whatever. She could go either way with what she wrote. You know, this could possibly fizzle. On the other hand, that you've got the the people who are very defensive of these courses and and disciplines, and you've got many many fo- woke foot soldiers that are going to go into defence. So it was, it was very it was it was very likely that uh, Helen, Peter, and James were going to they were going to go ad hominem, go for the man, try and cancel them, and then squash the story completely. And so in order to make the, the information and what they'd done get a fair read in the public, we got to work in the interim time between, you know, talking to Gillian and the, the release um, on making different kinds of explainers, I guess. So low-level explainers, your, your everyday YouTube viewer could could understand it. We made videos, we made different articles, we summarized the project as best we could, could. We packaged everything up, a few comments, all the papers, everything we could, everything that was attached to the project itself. So it was this huge folder of, of information. We created press releases. So it was kind of like the, the, the quiet before the storm and we really wanted to f- create a flash flood of information after Gillian had broken the story. So then no matter what she wrote or what how well the other side went at suppressing the story or turning it into a cartoon version of what it was, at least we would have a, a lot of information out there. And so we started networking with with people and sending it out to sending this stuff out to journalists after the story broke. We got in front of it. So there was a lot of information on the internet, a lot of people talking about it. And because we had told a lot of people who would be um, sympathetic to the story about it beforehand and asked them to write things and, and make things, then all of this information came out at the same time. And essentially, we kind of won the narrative war within the first 48 hours, which is extremely important in the, in the media, in this media circus mm. world. And so it was just, it was, I guess it was a kind of, it was a plan to jump out in front of any potential defence. Well, you actually, you, you got out there and were able to present the story of this as an idea to actually put a spotlight on what is an area that has been considered sacrosanct. Yes. And you actually were able to set the tone of what your idea was without yes. the people on the other side turning around saying they're trying to attack the canons of academia and civilization. Yeah, and, they're, and, the, and the usual, they're racist, they're yeah, sexist, they're yeah. homophobic, and this is the reason why they're doing that. Well, obviously that, that came. It was behind all the work that we'd done. And so I think on on, mm. on balance, we were able to come out ahead. And it wasn't like we were creating you know propaganda for our side anyway. We were really just trying to package up as much information as possible and trying to, you know, start it off with on a, on a good foot, but, but all the information's there for people to, mm. 
to look at themselves and and come up with their own kind of perspective on. And so it was kind of uh, it was it was about making sure it wasn't suppressed or they couldn't cartoonify the story, which which is what often happens in the in the news realm. They, they mm. just turn turn something into a cartoon version of what it actually is and then, you know, win from a political standpoint and mm. assassinate the people who are attached to the thing that is inconvenient for them. And I assassinate, when I say that, I mean digitally, reputationally. Yeah. Re- um, yeah. yeah. And also, so, and on that score, I mean, Peter was already in the crosshairs with the, the DEI and diversity boards yeah. within Portland State University anyway. So yeah. his position, even before you started, was tenuous, and he's now finally left there. Left, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so he's now, so Peter Bogosian has now got, a, I think it's, is it Conversations with Peter Bogosian, and he's now writing and, and doing a body of work that you can find yeah he's um, got he's got a, a non-profit organization to kind of talk about these things and mm. all kinds of content and youtube and Substack. stack and he'd, yeah so he's and writing gonna, at the moment yeah and i'm going to hopefully talk to him more about that in the coming yeah. weeks james Lindsay created new discourses mm-hmm. which is a fantastic resource if you want to learn anything about the other side of this wokery new discourses is the place to go but he then from that body of work and all the work that they did creating this that was also the genesis for um, the book that he wrote with Helen Pluckrose so we haven't really talked about Helen she was kind of I felt that Helen was the the matronly mothery um, (laughs) sort of she was almost she she kind of tempered down it's like she tempered down two very excitable puppies and got them focused on the work. That was my view of it. I like that actually. You, yeah, you, you lived Helen, in it. Helen, yes. Yeah. No, it's perfect. It was like we were because because we're like teenage boys in this, you know, having uh, making jokes about dog humping and putting objects in people's bums and all sorts of stuff. So it's, it's like it's very it's very. Uh, how would you explain like a crass? Yes. boyish very boyish fun it was it was like this punk thing that we were doing and helen pluckrose is um was the third member of the the team who has more of a background in the fields that we were talking about she doesn't believe in what they push forward but she has spent a lot of time looking at it and trying to understand it because she looks as it at it as a religion and was studying it like she used to study religious texts of the of she's a historian she's a feminist historian that used to study religious texts and then she got interested in this from from an outsider's perspective and started studying it and so she had a lot of knowledge that the guys didn't have and so she became instrumental in the you know, construction of the papers and making sure that they didn't, I guess, step on any red flags that were invisible because mm. there's a lot of customary behaviours you have to adhere to to and work f- in that world. Exactly. And from this project came cynical theories, which when I talk to people, because I've done a lot of reading, when I talk to people and they say, oh, this is just all so confusing, that in a way for me now is a go-to text. It's like, look, yeah. if you want to know all the academic background and where all the roads feed into read this book because they explain all the different elements and how it comes into what is the modern context now of of critical theory. So so in a way, so the project not only did this exposure, it also now created this incredible body of work from the three of them. Yes. Yeah, that, that's and that that, that book is that book is a bestseller. So there's a, there's a lot 
of kind of I guess pushback information that's now out there in the world and in the heads of a lot mm. of people. And so, yeah. from the point from the point where the where we were doing the project, I think the world was a little was more imbalanced in our way to be even to understand this stuff. I think, and I think that from that exposure and then the the, the hard work that's taken place after that, especially with Jim, mm. he's going further and further into it. Now you've got. People like uh, Chris Rufo in the in the US moving this into a kind of activism to push back at this kind of DEI bureaucracy and um, all sorts of other people have kind of uh, have found an in through through this this higher level philosophical academic work that's that's taken place. Do you feel proud that you broke ground to allow that you sort of started? It's just been, it's been a, a long time for these guys. Because why the length of time? Sorry, this is the, one of the questions that I have is why the length of time from when, because you would have had this all in the can yeah, three or yeah. four years ago. So why so long yeah. to get it out? It's uh, it's the film industry. So I, I wanted to, the, the idea for, for making the film, the way I wanted to make the film, because it was so, I, you can't get funding for something like this. And so yeah, I, I tried because I had, you know, networks and, from my last film in Australia, and I probably would have been able to if I had a if I created a film with any other subject matter. But because of the subject matter, you get uh, pushed out of the inner circles of of the arts and and the film network and everything like that. But that's, that's okay. It is what it is. I'm interested in this partially because you're not allowed to talk about it. And so the plan for this was to jump in film parts of it and release bits and pieces along the way in order to get enough funding to get, head into post-production and then turn it into a feature film and then put it through the more traditional avenues. And I, there's such a big story that I thought, hey, th- there's a chance that we'll be able to go through the traditional avenues. And th- the reason for that is uh, partially just because, you know, I'd like a career in the film industry, but also partially the channels, the kind of traditional film channels have access to people who would never come across the YouTube stuff, would never be listening to this thing that we're talking about now, we're talking on now. They're, they're kind of a more mainstream audience. And so to break that mainstream with a story with a story like this, I think would be a very interesting thing. And I think that they would be more interested in it if the kind of establishment backed something like this and then people watched it and thought about it. I think it would be a great experience from someone who's never been exposed to any of this stuff to see that this thing even took place. The hope was that that could happen. Phase one of that project went really well. So we we got enough funds from uh, the bits and pieces that we put up on YouTube. I mean, it's a meager amount of of production value. So it's it's not going to blow anyone away from a production value standpoint. But it was enough to, 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 you know, get some music made and... Um, I edited it myself, so you know all that that time was kind of you know passion work, and we we were able to shoot some extra stuff with a talented director of photography, and get it and get the sound design done, and so all, all that stuff costs a lot of money, and so we were able to do that and get it to the point where um, usually throughout in, in the documentary process there comes one point where distributors and sales agents and things like that come on board and then you get more money to turn it into a really slick presentation and uh and then you go through all the festivals and things like that um that didn't happen for us you know partially because how how would you explain it? it's kind of an artistic experimentation but i think it's mainly because the film industry is an extension of the academic disciplines and world Mm. that we critique in the film the process of trying to get it through that traditional uh, world, because I would often have often male, often 
older school, kind of Gen X, maybe even boomers, boomer producers that love the hell out of it. They love that it was subversive. They thought it was really funny and they just wanted to be part of it. And then they, they would do, they would go and feel out the industry to see, see where it could fit. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't fit every, anywhere mm-hmm. that, you know, people would be horrified. They would run for the hills, wouldn't want to be attached to this thing because of, you know, they wouldn't want their fingerprints on a crime scene as far as, <laughs> as far as the industry goes. And so that process took ages because we, we got little, we got little bites from people who would be interested and then, and then disappear. And then something else would pop up and then it disappear. And then something else would pop up and then disappear. And me- meanwhile, the, the industry turned upside down because of COVID. So that's, that's yeah. like, it's not like that's nothing in this story of, of the release and so we got to the point where it was like all right screw it well let's, let's just do it let's just do our own release and I, I decided to do it on Substack because I want to use the film as a vehicle to create as a, as a kind of like development process and so Substack has a subscription model and so I've broken the film down into four parts and people subscribe to see it $7 to subscribe for one month. If they want to move on, they can move on. They've, they've paid the $7. And then if they want to stick around, I will go into the development and research process for my next film. Mm. And so it's kind of, it's it's an attempt to use the film and the interest in the film to fund the development for my next one and to just, to make a kind of, I guess, a, uh, a functional model for filmmaking outside of the establishment because I'm not in, really interested mm. in anything the establishment will allow me to make, especially in the documentary world. It's quite... Yeah. Um, well, it's those parallel say, structures yeah. really, isn't it? I mean, they are parallel yeah. structures, yeah, mm. yeah. And so, so I guess, this- I guess that, that's, a, that's a long-winded story about, about the, the, the release. But it's, it's, the thing about the release is, and even though it's, it's a long time after, it's, been, it's doing really, really well. And so I'm really happy about this because I'm in a uh, position now where I can jump into the research. I don't, you know, I don't need my day job anymore. I can kind of start researching and, you know, making films and uh, again on my own, which I'm really excited about. And so the experimental Substack release for this thing has been, has been excellent. So mm. it's it's a happy ending to an otherwise harrowing tale of filmmaking. Oh, fantastic! And so that Substack, where can people? So we've excited everyone now. No, people that Good. don't know about it, where Good. can they find that, Mike? They can find that at uh, Michael Nainer at Substack.com. So that's N A Y N A. But don't panic. N-A-Y. Remember, I give all of this to our lovely Liz at inbox at realitycheck.radio. So you can Excellent. always check in with her. Well, the, the other thing, the other thing we'll plug is episode one of the four episodes is free to for everyone to see. So if you go to my um, YouTube channel, uh, Mike Nana on YouTube, you'll you'll see episode one there. So you get you get a get a taste of it. A little saison of what's to come, but it is definitely <laughs> worth it. I actually rewatched it again last night before we chatted, and right, uh, and it's fantastic. I've been waiting for this film for such a long time, so for me, it was it was uh, great. And I just Good. thank you so much, Mike. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Uh, don't disappear, everybody. Storm all great content here to come with Counterculture. You with Marie, and this is Reality Check Radio. Is the light okay in here? I've just read my email. We have our first win. The dog park paper has been accepted. They don't know. We're about to tell them. Gotta read you something. Dear Dr. Helen Wilson, (laughs) I have now closely considered the revisions of your manuscript, Dog Park, and and will recommend its publication in Gender, Place, and Culture. 
You have done very good work to address the issues the reviewers raised and have clarified your arguments. Thank you for your contribution to gender, place, and culture, and I hope to be seeing your manuscript in print. Yours truly, PhD, managing editor, gender, place, and culture. We have an accepted paper in the number one feminist geography journal. Since approximately June of 2017, I, along with two other concerned academics, Peter Bergoshin and Helen Pluckrose, have been writing intentionally broken academic papers and submitting them to highly respected journals in fields that study gender, race, sexuality, and similar topics. We did this to expose a political corruption that's taken hold of the university. By this point, several of these papers have been accepted in highly respected journals, and one that claims that dog-humping incidents can be taken as evidence of rape culture has been officially honored as excellent scholarship. I'm not going to lie to you. We had a lot of fun with this project. The, the reviewers are worried that we didn't respect the dog's privacy. <laughs> That's the concern. But we respected the chapel. <laughs> but don't let that lead you to believe that we're not addressing a serious problem. If you have a few minutes, I'll try to explain. To be clear up front, we think studying topics like gender, race, and sexuality is worthwhile, and getting it right is extremely important. The problem is how these topics are being studied right now. A culture has developed in which only certain conclusions are allowed, like those that make whiteness and masculinity problematic. The fields we're concerned about put social grievances ahead of objective truth. So as a simple summary, we call the problem grievance studies. To test the depth of this problem, my collaborators and I dedicated ourselves to a one to two year secret project targeting top grievance studies journals with an agreement to publicly release our findings no matter what the outcome. We started officially on August 16th, 2017, and by Thanksgiving, we were in trouble. We had begun ambitiously and mostly stupidly. Our first papers were really only suited to test the hypothesis that we could penetrate their leading journals with poorly researched hoax papers. That wasn't the case, and we were wrong for thinking we might be able to. So by late November, it looked like all we'd accomplish is ruining our reputations. If this doesn't achieve anything, it would actually frighten me. We needed to change our approach, so we walked back from the hoaxing and began to engage with the existing scholarship in these fields more deeply. This led us to learn a lot more about the inner workings of grievance studies. The best I can tap into is that there's this kind of like religious architecture in their mind where privilege is sin, privilege is evil, and then they've identified education as the place where it has to be fixed. So you can come up with these really nasty arguments like well, let's put white kids in chains in the floor at school as an educational opportunity. And if you frame it in terms of overcoming privilege, and then you you frame their their resistance that, that they won't want this to happen to them, that they would complain about this. If you frame that in terms of, oh, they only complain about that because they're privileged and they can't handle it because their privilege made them weak, then it's right in. Papers started getting in. You have got to be by March, with two papers accepted and one published, it would be fair to say that we had become accepted grievance scholars. By June, it was three, with one having been officially honored by the journal as excellent scholarship. By July, it was five. By August, seven. This shouldn't have been possible. So far, what we're learning is rather astonishing, but the data we've gathered require more analysis to fully comprehend. What appears beyond dispute is that making absurd and horrible ideas sufficiently politically fashionable can get them validated at the highest levels of academic grievance studies. We rewrote a section of Mein Kampf as intersectional feminism and this journal has accepted it. 
social work. This is deeply concerning because the work of grievance scholars goes on to be taught in classes, to design educational curricula, to be taken up by activists, to influence how media is produced, and to misinform journalists and politicians about the true nature of our cultural realities. No one tolerates this sort of corruption when they find out an industry is funding biased research to make itself look a certain way. The same scrutiny should apply to research when it pushes a political agenda. And we have uncovered enough evidence to suggest that this corruption is pervasive among many disciplines, including women's and gender studies, feminist studies, race studies, sexuality studies, fat studies, queer studies, cultural studies, and sociology. You may be thinking that the work done in these fields must be good, because it seems to continue the noble work of the civil rights movements. Well, after having spent a year immersed in it and becoming recognized as experts in it, we have to disagree. Grievance Studies does not continue the work of the civil rights movements. It corrupts it, and it trades upon their good names to keep pushing a kind of social snake oil onto a public that keeps getting sicker. Progress is easier without Grievance Studies. My collaborators and I are left-wing academics who can now say with confidence, these people don't speak for us. This is now a plea to all the progressives and minority groups these people claim to speak for. We suggest you spend some time critically engaging with the ideas coming out of these fields and decide for yourself whether they speak for you. You're with Marie, and this is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. If you want to know more about the reformers, do take a look at Mike's YouTube channel and view the first part for free, or check out the Joe Rogan podcast 1191 to hear his interview with Peter and James talking about the grievance studies affair. It's now time for a very special announcement for all of you, our loyal listeners. If you haven't caught up in your inbox, or on social media, something very special has just officially launched this week. Now, you know, of course, that here at RCR, we're on a mission to revive honest media, to report on critical censored stories, and to hold those in power to account. As our Paul would say, it's a good mission. But to make this happen, RCR needs to grow and grow fast. And for that, we need your support. The great news is now there is an easy way to show your support by becoming an integral part of the RCR team, while at the same time receiving some great benefits. You can now join our RCR Foundation Members Club. Aside from the sense of pride that comes from contributing to something that's big, that matters and makes a difference, the RCR Foundation members enjoy a host of exclusive member benefits. One of these is a special event, a backstage pass of sorts, that's happening online this Sunday evening, August 6th. I'll be there along with my RCR co-hosts, including Peter Williams, Paul Brennan, Cam Slater, Rodney Hyde and Natalie Cutler-Welsh. To learn more about the membership, you just need to visit realitycheck.radio. Again, you can find out everything you need to know. The Foundation Members Club, realitycheck.radio. Go and check it out today. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now.
Welcome back to Counterculture with Marie, and it's with great pleasure I welcome back my most returning guest and one of my absolute all-time faves, Helen Houghton, leader of the New Conservative Party. Good morning, Helen. How are you? Good morning, Marie. It's fantastic to be back on. Oh, it is so always so good to have you here. And we thought we would actually do something novel for us for a change, but actually talk about politics because tis the season. Oh, good stuff. We need that. Not not long to go now before we change this government. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, I know that you are absolutely uh, hitting the pavements out in Christchurch East. You're a lecturer that you are canvassing. What's the vibe on the ground, Helen? What are people telling you? Because I know that you're talking to a lot of people right now about what's going on in this country. Sure. Okay. So the wheels basically have come off the Labour and Greens government and the electorate is fed up with them. Um, They're ready to throw them out of power. You know, the issues that we're all facing, they've gone too far. Kindness and the all wishy-washy stuff is is out. Now, it it won't fix New Zealand. We need leaders who will act. Those who, you know, it's not about hugging. It's about actually standing up and acting and um, saying no to the nonsense that's out there. People, yeah, that's what I'm hearing from, from everyone. They've been they're tired of being ignored. And, you know, the people I've spoken to this time around agree with us. Actually, uh, conservative New Zealand are tired of being nudged towards liberal ideals. And it, it is time to get real and get New Zealand healthy again. Mm. So I'm ready to, yeah, ready to do that, ready for that change. Are you ready for that change, Marie? Uh, yeah, I'm so over it. I, I was ready for the change in 2017. But, you know, our Winston had other ideas, but that's another story oh. for another day. The minor parties. I mean, you have been probably, you're one of the OG minor parties. You've been around for a long time. You've been in the landscape a long time. You have been working with New Zealanders to to get those conservative ideals out there. And I have to say, you came pretty close here in Napier in 2014. So, you know, you've been doing it a long time. What's your feeling in terms of the minor parties? Because there is a very, very long bow to draw here in terms of getting somebody across that line. There was a poll that we had on the crunch with Cam Slater last week And I know Matt from Democracy New Zealand is really counting on getting that seat and the polling showed him at 2%. So realistically, the odds are against you. How are you tackling those odds in your electorate and with the party as a whole? Okay, well, like I said, people have had enough and I believe, and actually they've been saying to me, and even a strong national voter uh, in one of our local dairies recently said to me, this is an election for the smaller parties, which is fantastic, Marie. Now, talking about small parties and then there's the tiny tiny party. So New Conservative, we've polled at, uh, I know you're talking about previously, we actually did get around four and we came so close and so it can be done. Now, we polled 2.7 and 2.5 earlier on in the year before some of those tiny parties started up. While I respect all those people, it's quite disappointing with how many parties are actually, you know, splintering the votes that we could have, um, you know, like I said, we're at 2.7. The tiny parties are always asking us to join with them because, you know, I mean, let's face it, we do get five, ten times more the votes than they are getting and we're on the polls. So I don't expect that dynamic to change. Um, now, we know because we've polled at 2.7 is because people do share our views. You know, we know that that's what we're going for, the social conservatives. You know, a lot of people are talking about all the parties joining together. You know, we'd lose more votes than we would by joining some of those. And Mm. freedom, while many of them stand up for freedom, we all stand up for freedom. And freedom is not a policy. 
we're a well-established party with established policy platforms. But we really do think that, um, you know, while we cast the net wide enough to make getting that 5% is a possibility, we know it's going to be hard work, but we're going after every vote that we can. Mm, so let's have a look at some, dive into some of that policy. Um, one I remember from last time was uh, every referendum be binding. Is that still on, on the books with you guys? So we have uh, we're actually exciting news. On Friday, we've got our campaign launch and we've got a wee bit of a refresh. So that's going to be exciting for you to, um, and for the listeners to have a look at. So we, we do still have some of our older policies and all our values and everything is still there, but we've got a new refresh coming where um, we are looking at policies for the current, for here and now, not things that were 10 years ago. You know, it's really important that we're listening to the to our voters and to the people on the ground with the issues that we have that are facing us now. So that's not our huge focus right now. Mm. We're focusing on things like crime, on freedoms, on speech, on, you know, all, all of those things that are being taken away from us, basically, we get these uh, proposals come through, we go and speak to them and next minute overnight they're, they're approved and it's like even the pharmaceuticals one recently has gone through. Yeah, under, under urgency. urgency. I mean, really? What was Why urgent? Did that, about, yeah, what was urgent about that? So what are some of those key policies? If you were to get over, for argument's sake, if you were to get over that 5%, Chris is out there, Luxy Duxy's mm. out there and he's needing to cast around. For friends, you've crept over that 5% and Luxy says, Helen, let's have a cup of tea and sit down. What are the things that you would take to the table from a new conservative standpoint would be deal breakers for you? Okay, so first thing after that, I wouldn't be sitting down having a cup of tea, I'd be having a party. But anyway, <laughs> after the party, after the party, what we'll do, and actually it depends on how much leverage that we will have and how much support we can get from the Conservative National MPs and Chris, uh, we would like to implement as much Conservative policy as possible and roll back as much as the Liberal policy, of course, uh, making the Bill of Rights supreme law. We've had that uh, as a petition over the last year, and so that's at the top there. And for me, if you know anything about me, it's also the gender and education. So that's non-negotiable for me. That's why I got involved in politics. Uh, you know, I'm passionate about protecting our children. And so removing all gender theory from our schools is a must, but also handing back control of the curriculum to the school leaders and the boards. You know, the government have enabled lobby groups to politicise our classrooms and we need to stop that. So that's that's a must. Mm. What about transparency around those lobby groups that have had so yeah. much in, of influence on policy? Would that be something on your radar? A hundred percent. We talked once before on an interview about the fact that the Rainbow community, they have a rainbow room, and I'm not talking about just somewhere to go for, for Rainbow community to go and relax and chill out. I'm talking about, a, you know, rainbow room where they, you know, doing talking about policy and, yeah, they're right in there. They're in the, in the government house. So, yeah, they have far too much control. And, and look, it's not only in our education centres. We're talking about all institutions, Marie. When I put a citizens-initiated referendum out earlier in the year, the opposition that I had to that was not only the Ministry of Education. We had the Ministry of Justice, Ministry of Health, PPTA, Teachers' Council, the whole, you know, all these institutions. It's like, you know, the go woke or go break, well, actually, that's what's happening to Labour now, isn't it? So there you go. 
Mm. There's a push too with this government to create all of these laws and councils, for a lack of better term, and regulators. How many times have we heard the term regulator in the last three years? One of the latest and greatest, uh, which we have been talking about a lot on the station in previous weeks, has been the Safer Online Services and Media Platforms consultation document. There's a mouthful for yeah. it just rolls off the tongue, uh, which of course, you know, to be honest with you, is online censorship laws is what this is. And, and as you said, freedom is not policy, but what can be policy is protecting those freedoms under the Bill of Rights, which I think you've outlined as something that you yeah. want to entrench. Things like those freedoms of speech, those groups, the funding of those groups like our friends at the Disinformation Project. What are your Ooh, thoughts and feelings yeah. around those? Oh. <laughs> have I, I opened I Pandora's box, have on. I? I don't know if I can say some of those things online, but I'll, I'll give it my best shot. We've talked about the freedom thing, and for myself, it's the same thing in education where it's like we're not teaching children how to critically think anymore. It's telling them what to think with ourselves not being able to speak. Who, who regulates? Who decides what is hate speech? Who decides, you know, when, if it, is it just about somebody who has a different opinion? And that they don't like it because that's what I've seen over the last few years. You know, it's like, you know, we need to have debate. We need to be able to understand each other. And we won't be able to do that unless we are able to put all our ideas and all our thoughts out there. And who's to say that your idea is actually the wrong one, Marie? And, uh, you know, same with, with me. It's like we all come with different perspectives and experiences in life and things that happen. So we have reasons for what we, um, why we think the way we do. And if we're going to be shutting that down, that's going to cause more, more, um, more frustration. And you can see that in the communities when we when they've talked about the hate speech law, that actually causes a lot more aggression with people because you're telling people what they now can't, can say and can't say. Now, while our Prime Minister has said he's put that you know, to the side, you can guarantee that that will come out of their back pocket, you know, if they were able to get back into power at the next election. So, yeah, and a highly concerning is it Kate Kate Hanna. Do you want to talk about this Kate Hanna business? Because there's something recently that she um, has put out an article around speaking out about the silencing of women. Mm, have you heard? Mentioned, yes, I have. I mentioned this on our political agenda last Friday. Yes, I did hear about this. I did hear about oh, this. Yeah, I read this and I'm really concerned. So I'd I'm hoping that we can have a wee quick chat about that because there's some issues here. Well, I think it's important that we dive into this because, as you said, popping things in the back pocket, we know that Labour are good at this. I mean, Labour have made an art of campaigning on one thing whilst trying to secretly move policy through that has not mm. been campaigned on and then turns up and before you know it, poof, hey, pua pua, you think to yourself, well, where did that come from? I bet you dollars to donuts there were a lot of people who voted Labour in the 2020 election that when hey, pua pua was brought to light probably thought to themselves, well, I, I never voted for that. The speech stuff, this free speech stuff, the piece we're talking about, if anyone wants to reference it, it's from the spin-off of the, on the 25th of July. It's written by Kate Hanna, speaking out about the silencing of women. The broad theme of this, the timing is interesting because the 31st of July is when the submissions closed on that discussion document I mentioned before. That discussion document 
one of the things they want to introduce essentially is a regulator, a regulator over online content and speech. And I read this article and I thought, oh, Kate, have you just popped, A, the submission and the article, printing of the article, the timing was suspicious to me, being so close to that. And two, are you, is this you just popping your hat in the ring, you know, just putting your name out there because you fancy yourself in that role? That's the first two big overthemes, and that was before I even dived into the muck. What stood out for you in this, Helen? There's two things first in the title, and then I'll I'll add mm. some more. So first off, I would change it. I'd fix the title. The title, I would say, would be speaking out about the silencing of men. Uh, now, I say that because... Yeah, we've got some some issues I'd like to delve into there. But the other thing is the legitimate place where there is silencing of women, Kate and people in positions such as our Minister for Women are silent when they should be speaking out for things like women's spaces, women and girls' sports, uh, bathrooms and prisons. It's interesting, isn't it, that she's talking mm. about that this when you don't hear a boo out of any of them when it comes to actually women, you know, mm. those real issues. And look, she goes on to identify the problem. She calls it for women, girls, and LGBTQIA. Now there's only one category missing. Who is it? Mm. Men. Men. It's a male. So what a man bashing statement. Yeah. <laughs> it is yeah. it's man bashing, it's diatribe. When I see this, I'm not surprised that there is abuse online. Now it's what it is, it's an emotional, psychological framing of the male sex as enemy number one. They are sabotaging manness. How can we not react? I react over it. I mean, men, unless they identify as someone on the rainbow community, are classed as unacceptable species in Hannah's framing of this. I would also say that many women would not be happy that Hannah takes it upon herself to lump woman into a sex alongside victimhood with LGBT plus that alphabet soup. I mean, toxic masculinity is shamed onto every man as if they are the cause of every aspect of everything about woman suffering or anything like that. And she's talking, you know, Hannah was talking about trolling and abuse online is causing women to exit the political world in general life in public or public life. Now, I am, as you all know, leading a conservative party. I'm the only female on a board with seven men. In two years, I have been, as I've been in leadership, only one man emailed me to say that I shouldn't be the leader because I'm a woman. <laughs> and he actually, he went on, he wanted to know my thoughts on the Bible verse about men leading the home. So, you know, obviously I didn't respond to that. I just laughed about it. So, that, but I'm saying, you know, where is all this abuse that's coming from males onto women leaders? I'm leading yeah, yeah. the Conservative Party. And I haven't, I haven't seen that. I haven't had that. And it doesn't mean I'm minimising it, any abuse or that uh people should treat it as normal. There will be some abuse online. I get that. But is it only from is it only from men? I assure you that there's no. women as well as men. And look, a race, a responsible question would be who's self-managing in that space? Like Marie, do you allow everybody onto your Facebook? Because it takes some personal responsibility 
how does somebody get attacked online? What are you doing online all the time? You know, why are you listening to this stuff? Um, what, what's that saying about uh, when people write something about you or say something about you? It's none of your business. It's like, mm. you, you know, it's there. But if they're talking, I don't want to know about what people are saying about me. I don't really, you know, if they're negative, who cares about well, you that? you have like online um, places and spaces. Interestingly enough, not yet in this job have I struck this stuff, but I have in my other in my day job, um, as opposed mm. to this the, being the side gig, I talked about it in the political agenda. I've got an entire file. Cam Slater said he stopped keeping it because he needs a warehouse for all his, but mine mine is, oh. can still fit into a, into a file. I've been at it a lot less time than Cam. Mm. And I went back through it, and it's all women. All of this abuse is women. I have seen the nastiest behaviours perpetrated against women by women Mm. and so when she says things here like there is a critical need to understand the growing use of technology to stalk threaten hack and ultimately silence high-profile women getting to grips with the impacts of this violence on women's well-being workplaces families and ultimately communities requires research that is firmly embedded in the feminist approaches Um, if that's not her asking to put a hand out and saying you need to give me a job. This is, I'm going to fix this. This is, you know, this is, that for me is your job interview. This must be grounded in local, regional and community contexts and contend with the chronic underreporting of gender-based violence. Manifested how exactly, sweetie? Where is this gender-based mm. violence? Now, if the gender-based violence mm. is women abusing, trolling, I've had the most nasty things said to me all by women which is mm. even more the case when the violence is committed using technology. Mm. The over-feminization, particularly, you as mm. an educator must see this in the education system. I know you've got boys. I've got boys. One of my sons has been talking to me about the rise of masculine figures online, right? Mm. That a lot of teachers are not very happy about that because they claim that they're misogynist and all of oh, these gosh. things. Well, of course, these young boys are going to be attracted because they have been told these young teenage boys are not allowed to express their innate maleness. They have been told that that part of them is wrong. So as these kids get older, I, I can see unless as parents we're able to instill that actually, no, darling, there's nothing wrong with your maleness. And in fact, that is your greatest strength there are going to be a lot more issues further down the track. I mean, women, we are not the the cure and panacea for everything. Surely Kate must see this. Oh, look, Marie, you're going to be really excited on Friday when we bring out our refresh because it's all about manliness. And I'm fed up with man bashing. In In her article, it's just that I'm embarrassed for my sons and concerned that this is a perception of women that they will carry when they're constantly blamed for anything that a woman has an issue with, how are we supporting relationships, let alone, you know, the differences between the two sexes when we always focus on one sex? 
anyone would think that women do no wrong. And you've just said that. Look, what about when women behave badly? I'm thinking about the news story recently with the woman who was dragged out of co-governance uh, meeting. meeting. She got dragged out. I don't know if you saw that. You know, the focus was on that poor woman who got dragged out. I tell you what, I watched it and she was still blowing that damn whistle as they were dragging her out. Certainly didn't look like she actually wanted to surrender and walk out as she claimed to. She was trespassing, you know what I mean? Mm. And obviously they couldn't manhandle her like they would a male. So how else are they going to remove her while she's, you know, on that blowing that whistle? Mm. So, yeah, just a real brief. I don't want to release too many of our um, amazing policies. Oh, but go on. One Give, of us our hint, Helen. Give us a hint, Helen. Give us a hint. Okay, okay. So we have got encourage manliness, would you believe? We have great fathers, sons and husbands are everywhere, but we need to encourage them to fulfill their potential because of this man bashing vote to encourage great fathers and sons is what we say and there's more to that but like you said yep I've got two adult sons and I'm concerned you know I've always been concerned about you know there are women out there that are nasty you know we know we know don't we Marie that it's not all about the male I interviewed a 15 year old actually you I think you put it on one of our um, I did. I did, one of our yeah. past ones. Do you know what he said to me, and that wasn't in the interview, he told me that, so he's 15 and he goes to one of the boys' high schools, and he said that even at 15 they feel that attack of their manhood. In this particular school, they're allowed to wear nail polish, but they are not allowed to have facial hair. This is a boys' school, Marie. They're allowed to wear nail polish, you know, the gender thing, clearly, but no facial hair. <laughs> One of the things I like to love about um, the school that my sons are at, because as I've mentioned many times before, our boys are with the Catholics, the school there really do handle it the whole question of always wanting to express themselves quite well. And the school that they were at had a, there was a quite well-publicised court case around their hair policy many years ago. But what they have there is it is very culturally diverse, exceptionally culturally diverse. Mm -hmm. They allow the young men there to express what is prevalent within their culture. So there are a lot of uh, Sikh and Hindu boys at the school. There's boys who wear turbans. There's boys who have, boy, one ducks last year. He had a full beard. There's a lot of Polynesian boys at the school. So, of course, depending on where you are in Polynesia in terms of long hair, that's very common. Uh, they have a full Polynesian uniform, which for the where I am in the provinces is quite common in larger centres, but they do have a Polynesian uniform that boys can opt into if they choose to, which of course is to Western eyes is a skirt. They have all these different elements, but it, they're still, there is no mistake that these are young men who are part of the fabric of the overall school. And they encourage these boys to grow up to be fine young men. And I love that and I cherish it. And I am so thrilled. I mean, the faculty endorse it fully. And I'm finding how rare that is becoming now. And I, I, I'm sad. I'm really sad. I think that is just utterly tragic. There's a lot that's tragic in the community, and it's all around division and putting putting people against each other. You know, how can men and women find females and males find happiness when with so much division? There's criticism of each sex all the time, looking for faults. You know, blaming and shaming and condemning, even in the culture wars that are going on. But um, you know, I, I think we all need to take a hard look at ourselves, and then both sexes 
call a lead for solidarity mm. and that, that's with culture as well but look just going back to obviously we're talking about Kate Hannah and the censorship and all of that regulation do we have to have a gatekeeper to control information or do we in fact take some responsibility for our own online actions we're the ones that are using the internet mm. we are on there so surely as an adult we take the responsibility of who we allow onto that space I've got a couple of theories about this. Theory number one is is someone who, for the other life, manages online spaces. Theory number one is uh, in terms of social media, I view it very much, it's your party. So you have rules and codes of conduct to be within those spaces. And as far as I'm concerned, if someone isn't behaving appropriately at my party, I will ask them to leave. It's as simple as that. I have no qualms about that. And because I want to protect the well-being and the joy of everyone else in that space. If people go, oh, you're trying to censor me and trying to censor my speech. Look, you can say whatever you want, darling. Just don't come and shit in my nest. It's as simple as that. So that is thing number one. Thing number two, rule number two. And this is for anybody out there on either side of this equation, right? The conservative side or the more neo-Marxist side. Rule number two, you need to approach posting on any form of social media the same way as if you were driving a car. And what I mean by that is, is you do not post when you've been drinking. (laughs) It's as simple as that. If you've had a few wee winesies, you don't go and get behind the wheel of your car, do you? Apply Mm. that same rule. When you see something pop up on that Twitter feed and you think, um, no. No, and it's a rule that I've lived by. And whenever I've fallen off the wagon in the early days, that's when I got hammered and I thought to myself, no, actually, I think that's a hard and fast rule. No drinking and texting. You just can't do it. You can't, no drinking and posting. You just, no. (laughs) And that in itself is quite good because sometimes you get caught up in the heat of the moment. You need to step away from the keyboard. You need to step away from the keyboard or text it to yourself just so you can get it out and you know, move on because sometimes there are conversations where you just don't want to engage. And I've learned very, very quickly that sometimes you need to, to lose a battle to win a war. And do you really need to be battling in one of those conversations with an idiot on Facebook and Twitter? 100%. I mean, we've probably all fallen into the trap of reacting at times, but yeah, you're right. Walk away, walk away. And it's funny, isn't it? It's, they're all echo chambers, mostly anyway. It's it's no different than all these um, new new little tiny parties uh, thinking that they're going to get 5% because they're all in these tiny little echo chambers of everybody telling them how amazing they are. Uh, it's really unfortunate because that's, um, you know, ruining the chances of the couple that could get there. So on that, Leighton has gone out on his own and I think he's standing is it in Waimakamakariri is that right? That is Leighton's electorate correct. Yep, correct so big call I fear that he may fall into the same trap that Matt King has fallen into where mm. you're relying on name recognition to get you across the line For the listeners out there and I know we get this question a lot uh, through our feedback here at realitycheck.radio, why aren't the the smaller parties getting together and talking about pulling things together, similar to what the Tamakis and Sue Gray have done? But I am sure it's not through lack of trying. Is that right, Helen? Absolutely. So probably over, actually it would be over one year 
we've all, all of those parties, all of those key figures, the personalities, we've all sat around tables, we've all had conversations, different times with different groups. Um, most of us have really good relationships. However, you know, like you said, there's the Leighton Bakers and a few others. You've got your small parties like New Zealand First and New Conservative who have been around, you know, for the long haul. And then you've got your other tiny parties is what I refer to them as. They've just come up lately. And, you know, like I said, they've been asking us, but yeah, it's a shame. It's like, why didn't they join us? Why didn't, um, you know, I can't I can't speak about these people, but yeah, why, why haven't some come back into one of these, you know, the biggest small party so that we could work together to get across the line? It would be an easy fix. So yeah, if people would just drop that needing to be the leader of their mm. own party, it would be really good to um, so be able to here, work with them. Here's a question then, and this is left field, I'm sorry. But okay. in terms of umbrellas, have you rung Winston and said, hey, let's combine forces and, look, we don't necessarily agree on many things, but we do actually agree on some of the big things because if you combined your polling with his polling, that would give you guys a fair suck of the save. Oh, Marie, that is left field. And you know what? I'm going to let the cat out of the bag and be honest and open and transparent because I like to be there and that's what I expect from the government. And I don't think it's a secret. I've contacted Winston. <laughs> I've actually contacted them a couple of times and put a really good deal uh, offer to them. So, yes, we'd like that to happen. So if, if Winston or any of Winston's people are listening, get Winston to give me a call. We actually have a lot. You said uh, we might have some things we disagree on, but actually, you know, you look at the policies and we actually agree on most things. You know, I even have uh, New Zealand First supporters phone me. Yeah, we communicate really well when we're out campaigning together. So they know that, um, you know, they're happy with some of the, a lot of the things that I've been standing and opposing. Yeah, we have to wait and see, I suppose. Mm. But you know, nothing's guaranteed for New Zealand first, and but it certainly would be if our new conservative was working with them. Hmm. I mean, because is it too late for this election to create that kind of umbrella now, or is it? Is it like is there a cutoff? I don't know the rules. So is there oh, a oh, we could do. We could there? absolutely do something together still. Uh, really, yeah, and it doesn't mm. need to be an umbrella. We can, yeah, we can do something. Right. So really yeah, easily. it could be like a, yeah. All right. I know people that know people, Helen. Oh, Is good it, stuff. Hey, can you can you get that happening then? I'll, I'll, I'll just pick the phone <laughs> from, um, from the leader a little bit later today. Yeah, Thanks, Marie. You, no, well, it's just because this is this is the thing. As you said. Uh, you had one of your constituents say, this is this is the election of the minor parties. My concern is looking at all of these votes that could be potentially wasted. It was 7.8% last time. I have said this on the record. I believe it's going to be considerably higher than that, unless there is some consolidation this time. It is important that we get those voices coalescing together to try mm. and get across the line. And I think the poll in Northland was stark. And I think that should really be yeah. sending alarm bells to a number of people mm. because that poll, and do you know what the biggest number about that poll was actually, Helen, is they had the party vote poll and the un, unsures or don't know number on or what their party vote would be was 15%. But on the candidate vote, the unsure number was 30%. So that's nearly one third of Northland voters 
still mm. don't know which way they're going to cast their vote. And that just shows you the level of dynamic element that mm. is still out there, the potential that's still out there, but also to the uncertainty and the disillusionment that voters have right now about the people that are representing them. Absolutely. And it's not that clear cut that, you know, Matt King thought he was taking it away, but, you know, clearly not if there's 30% that no. didn't put his name down. Um, and look, everywhere that there's proportional representation across the world, for example, in Europe, we're seeing the large parties shrink and the smaller parties grow. So this is now happening in New Zealand. Like I said, we're hearing it. People say it's a it's the election for the small parties. So get the small parties in. We are ready. We're all ready to get in there and turn this, turn everything around. We're all about conserving the good for a better New Zealand. So I appreciate being on here, Marie. It's always great talking to you. Um, yeah, we have a big bash coming up on Friday. If anybody would like to come, get, uh, email me if you haven't already got an invite or heard about it through, if you're not on our database, email me at helen.houghton at newconservative.org.nz and email me if you'd like an invite. going to have a big bash Saturday the 5th, 5th of August. Awesome. And of course, uh, your mm. website uh, has lots of information there as well. And the website, uh, New Conservatives. Oh, 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 yes. That, that one is going to be refreshed and that's that'll be released um, very soon. So it'll be exciting. Excellent. Oh, look, Helen, I really do appreciate, um, I, as always, I love chatting to you. Um, she's one of my favourites, Helen, which is why I keep having you back. Uh, and we, we always have such good discussions. So I'll see what I can do. I can see what I can do about. A phone call, you know, because we know Winston's quite wait, partial wait, wait, to a phone call. Yeah, we know he's quite partial oh, to yes. a phone call. So I can see what we can do about that. And if you have any feedback whatsoever for us, remember realitycheck.radio is our website. You can text us at 2057 or send us an email to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And if you want to check out the replays, click the replay button on our website and look up the previous interviews that I have done with Helen. They are fantastic. We've talked about a lot of issues, particularly around education, and that will give you a very clear idea of where things are. Thanks, Helen. As always, I'm sure you and I will catch up again before the election. I know we will. Uh, go well, and we'll see what we can do. Super. Thanks, Marie, and thanks to all the audience who are listening as well. Take care. More here still to come on Counterculture, including the Woke News of the Week. So don't disappear. Wow. There you go. Great to hear again from Helen. And obviously, I need to make a few phone calls. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Share them with us via email at inbox at realitycheck.radio or by text to 2057. That's 2057. Remember, Helen has been interviewed by me on Counterculture talking about gender education in schools. So if you'd like to hear those interviews, search it out on our replays page. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie and as we do this time every show it's time to welcome back Marty Gibson who's been across in the Western Isles. Good to have you back my friend. G'day mate, how are you doing? Yeah I know you had a week across the ditch, how was it? Yeah it was good, That's good, you've got to get away, it's good to get a little bit of time by yourself if you've got young kids and you're married, it just makes you appreciate people and all the more and even better it makes you a lot more appreciated <laughs> so I came home to a lot of appreciation which was nice oh and, that's um, lovely and of course you were over catching up with family and had some time in, yep. the, in the big smoke in the Sydney we texted a little bit while you were away and you said there was a 
lots of tradies running around in shiny new vans and, and things yeah. did appear a little bit more prosperous. It's quite funny because I've come back to stories about um, various Kiwi movers and shakers heading to Australia, Tam- mm. uh, Tamsin adding the uh, wallpaper ladies moved to Brisbane and just saying, you know, she got done in five weeks, what she couldn't get done in five years here. There is just that feeling that things are being built and you, I look at the tradies and they've got new, well set up vans and they're moving faster. If you've ever had a job where you've had to hire people and make money off what they do, it makes you keenly aware of hand speed. Mm. Mm. And I noticed the hand speed's greater. And yeah. and it's like they're kind of getting a job done so they can move to the next job. Whereas with Kiwis, sometimes you look at them and the hand speed's slow, so they draw out the job in case there's not a, not another one. I don't think things are necessarily on all fronts better across there. But the one thing the Australians have uh, by advantage is just purely size and scale. I mean, we yep. this is the thing we forget. I think New Zealanders are very, we, we're wonderfully optimistic about what an incredible nation and people that we are. But sometimes actually, I think we forget our inconsequentiality, that the fact that we are so small. We punch above our weight, but we are only five and a bit million people. Well, yeah, and, and then we add things to it, like we don't use our natural resources the way Australia uses theirs. You know, the whole importing Indonesian coal and not using ours, the whole shutting down our natural gas and burning, yeah, brown Indonesian coal doesn't help. (laughs) Business is really starting to get a bit fed up. That was one of the themes that I certainly picked up this week. There seems to be a little bit more around business. There's Fran O'Sullivan looked at the whole business confidence angle. And actually, even Andrea Vance covered off some business in terms Mm. of things softening in China, which is something... I'm acutely aware of as, as the day job, we do actually have some business relationships with China. We need to be careful in this country because we have long put far too many Kiwi eggs in the dragon basket. And mm. I think diversification, the fact that we haven't diversified because it's just been easy and it's been there, when the brown stuff starts to hit the fan, I think we could, There, I think there are already businesses starting to see impacts on that. And it is quite concerning. And and you also saw some productivity numbers as well that worried you. Well, no, it wasn't productivity numbers so much as, as the product. It was a big girl, Derek Ching. Derek Ching always writes long articles and they're pretty sound. They're not always the liveliest, but he does. This is in, actually in Monday's New Zealand Herald. But he did a, a good uh, analysis of the Productivity Commissioner's report. Towards the end of it, there was a... Uh, criticism, there is also a perception the commission is too left-leaning, which the report does little to dispel. And yeah, I can go through that. And it's like the numbers are staring them right in the face. And it's the things that we just rattle on and on and on about. You can't expect good outcomes when Decile 1 schools are leaving fewer more than 3% of the children who go through it from Decile 1 schools for 10 years, able to be functionally literate and numerate. That's the problem. If you're a Māori leader, you can blow on about how racist New Zealand is, but if you're not really laser-sighting in on that as a terrible injustice, that these kids are doomed to be unable to meaningfully participate in the workforce as any more than uh, minimum wage workers doing terribly unfulfilling jobs, then really you have to ask, well, Are you there for them or are you there for yourself? And, you know, you can just see these guys sort of find that and then just like an addict relapsing, just going straight back to identity politics. So it says, 
the chances of experiencing one form, so one form of persistent disadvantage, are three and a half times higher than average if you don't have a high school qualification or are renting a state house, two and a half times higher if you're Pacific, twice as high for a sole parent, 1.7 times higher if you're disabled, and 1.5 times higher for Māori. So, you know, you're sort of going downstream of that education figure. And I think if you broke down the education attainment by, if you really wanted to do that, which you don't really need to, by race, then you'd find that you go right back there. Stats NZ's 2021 wellbeing report shows groups with life satisfaction below the average rating uh, include disabled people, solo parents, the unemployed, people with a household income of $30,000 or less. It doesn't really show Māori are that disadvantaged in that. It quotes, and, and this is again, when, when Nana was appointed as a commission, so this is Nana Ganesh, who's the Productivity Commission chairman. When uh, he was appointed as commission chairman, actually David Seymour called him an outspoken critic of capitalism, adding, we're not going to be able to afford better pharmaceuticals or a cleaner environment if we simply ignore it and decide to measure nebulous concepts like loneliness, inclusion, and identity. He told the Herald it was a the report latest report was a good example of why the Productivity Commission needs to go. National Party leader Christopher Luxon did not respond to a request for comment. They should have been all geared up, waiting for this thing to drop, and had a really eloquent vision that they could basically bounce off this about why they were going to do better. Well, you know it, damn well that if if this was given to Stephen Joyce. He yeah. would have not only have given comment, but he then would have given his view of how to actually have fixed it. Christopher Luxon falls into another bucket of tits and comes up sucking his thumb. Mm. Then old Ganesh says, defends himself. Some might see it as tainted, but I would push back quite strongly on that. Well-being is unfortunately a politically tainted word in the New Zealand vocabulary, but it's being used across the world in terms of objectives for economic and social policies, he said. The OECD uses well-being. The IMF uses well-being. New Zealanders are being maybe a little bit naive in thinking that well-being is just a hobby horse for the left. It goes across this political spectrum. Now, again, I would say he's being a little bit naive in thinking that those organizations aren't looking to foist global Marxism on the world. And as I've often said about old uh, Chipkins and uh, Dialita, they're a screen and a keyboard. The mm. uh, the CPU is in the WEF. And also, do you need to look at what well-being is a euphemism for? And yeah. well-being is often a euphemism for bringing people down to the lowest common denominator, well, he, which, he of course, is Marxism 101. That. Yeah, the Commission's report identifies four main barriers in the public service and government. Power imbalances, those relatively well-off looking after themselves, siloed and fragmented ministries, short-termism, and institutional racism and discrimination, including the ongoing impact of colonization. Um, the colonization card got played. Yeah. Shocker. But he's, he's saying this is best addressed by centrally supported, locally led, place-based solutions that honor Te Tiriti or Waitangi, which is also a central tenet of the Future of Local Government report released for the same time as a fair chance. Well, now, 
I do agree with that. I, I do think if you're going to um, solve this, you do need to have local people given some resource to identify and solve local problems. And he did identify, the commission highlighted the work of particular programs, including Manake Tairafiti and the Southern Initiative in South Auckland, which put whānau at the centre and provide multi-agency support. Now, uh, Te Tairafiti, as um, many of you know, is uh, Gisborne, where uh, Maria and I, um, our ancestors, uh, lived in the same small rural village. So I looked it up and, and you know, without being unkind, the people I saw who were in charge of that, with one or two exceptions, are very much the people who like to be king turd of shit hill. Mm. They're the people who normally hold themselves up as the spigot through which the largesse of government should travel through in order to keep it bumping along in last place. I could think of a lot of people I would have put in that organization who would probably um, might not make the same nice brochures or presentations, but probably would have been the sort of street fighters you'd want to really get in there and shake things up. Mm. Uh, they're very much connected with various ministries. They're connected with the boys clubs and the pink sealed Eastland group. You know, I would have put a GP in there. I think if you put a GP in there and and said, okay, what are the problems and how can you get to it? That would be a great way to get some of those hard to reach families. GPs spend a lot of time frustrated. They are patch up guys. Mm. You know, they give people antibiotics because, you know, they could teach them to dig a garden, but They've got 10 minutes and they've got a kid with glue ear. Some of the stories my old man used to t- tell me about going into a house where there'd been a cot death, getting in there and it's cold. And there's a, an empty fireplace. There's no wood. There's two young men sitting around smoking inside, looking sad, not really doing anything. You could really channel some of the frustration that people working at those coal faces feel. And there's a fine line between education and simply just coming across like you're telling people what to do. And a lot of the educational resource that I've seen, particularly across the COVID era and even prior to that, just sort of reeks of this, you're going to do what you're told that you're supposed to do. And I have yeah. to admit, if I was on the receiving end of that, I'd be like, F off, you know. And yeah. I think there's been a lot of that. There is no dignity. There's no respect. As you said, there's nothing on the coalface. And one of the other things that drives me insane with this whole colonisation and race baiting card is that it turns everybody on its head and it says that if you fall into one of these marginalised groups, you are therefore a victim and you're stealing away all aspiration. And if you're a kid at school, if you want to achieve, one of the things that will drive you to achieve to get you out of whatever situation that you're in is some sort of great aspiration. And what have they got to aspire to? I can see why there's more of these kids going into gangs than there are cops. Yeah. because and and cr- because yeah. that's that is it. That well, that's it's, it's, all they're seeing is aspiration. Where yeah, is the- removal of agency? It's one of the things I said uh, when I was returned to academia briefly. <laughs> you know, was do you think that white privilege is that when there's something rotten in our culture, we can excise it, we can have a good honest look at it, and if it if it's wrong, we can cut it out. Whereas we patronizingly tell Maori that if there's something going wrong for them it's someone else's fault. Mm. So it removes agency from them and and they can't look at some of the things that maybe aren't working for them, like not valuing education, like not turning up to medical appointments. Mm. And then when you have supposed role models 
who have received everything, the education, the advantages that many in that situation can only dream of. Yeah. And they are lauded as a role model. And you literally have raised and lifted this person up to aspire and lead. Oh, I know who you're thinking about. Oh, yeah. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah. And how many times you and I have actually had her, and I'm talking about Kitty Tapu Allen now. I had a rent last Friday. I know everybody. I'm still there. I haven't mm. de-rented yet. You and I many times have had stories about her that we've just never got to in media matters. There has been a pattern of bad behaviour with her for a very, very long time. She is an example of what I call piss-poor political parenting. Right. Classic example of it. And she has had everything there. She is somebody, regardless of your politics, that could have actually been a role model for people within her community to look up to. And what has she gone and done? She has acted like the spoiled brat that she probably is. She's probably never been knocked down other than the big health scare. She fought through that. But there is a level of bad behaviour. And it's not just with Kiritapu. And the whole media circus across the weekend of, oh, no, you must be nice to Kitty, and this is all about mental health, and you can't do this, and putting the suicide numbers in there, and please be kind to her, be kind to her, because feel sorry for her, be kind to her. Look, I'm not in her head. I don't know how she's feeling, but I'm sure she feels like a bucket of pus right now, and I don't deny that. But sometimes when you're the person shoveling the shit, sometimes the shit flies back, and she she needs to wear that, and she hasn't developed any political resilience over this. And why is it that they are giving her a free pass? Is it because she's Wahine Māori? Do you I want me to tell you what? Go on. You've got a theory on this. I can feel it. I've got a theory on Not this. Not me from ranting. There's zero political capital to be had by holding women accountable for their actions. Maybe that's good. Maybe it's bad. What people are tying themselves in knots to address is that women aren't men. Mm. You know, it goes right back to when the fuse was lit on the destruction of Western civilization, probably, you know, partially when the contraceptive pill came along. Suddenly it was assumed, well, you know, now women don't have to worry about getting pregnant. They're sexually just like men. And so a lot of this Me Too stuff, you know, this hyper, you've, you've got to get consent, is basically a return to an acknowledgement, well, women aren't like men. The culture wants to destroy us. They want mm. to take us off the board. And, I mean, women I'll, aren't I'll like men. They want us to be completely neutral. I'll throw women an olive branch here because I do love women. Don't, ladies. I love you, but you frustrate me sometimes. <laughs> and I will say to men, you know, I mean, it is tempting. It is tempting to think, well, ladies, you kind of watched and tut-tutted while we were getting our balls ripped out through our wallets, while we were getting hammered, and now you're getting hammered you don't like it much, do you? But mm. I think we've got to kind of step back from that, especially those of us with daughters, and I have two daughters, and understand, well, we're in this together. We've got to, and I'd say, I say this to Māori all the time, you know, you've got to know your enemy, bro. You yeah. know, it's not me. Mm. Um, so we've got to get together and, and identify that we're, we're basically um, the subject of a pretty well-orchestrated, carefully planned and masterfully ex executed PSYOP. Yeah, absolutely. And the behaviours too. It's And that's why I call it political parenting, because you and I are both parents. You know, you all go through challenges when you're parenting. You don't know what you don't know. 
Mm. And one of the things that you learn with parenting is that you've got to set boundaries, you have to enable positive behavior, and you've got to pull back on negative behavior. You've got to create resilience. And the way that you create resilience is you've got to let the little suckers fall flat on their face from time to time. Mm. And a lot of that's been stripped out of it. Yeah, there's a great line in that wonderful book, and I can't remember who wrote it off the top of my head, The Road Less Traveled, very famous, one of the first real good self-help books written by a psychologist, where he said, the wonder isn't that people are messed up. The wonder is that they're not so much more messed up than they are. And, you know, as I've gone through my own parenting journey, I've often thought, man, this is quite challenging. And I've got a stable marriage. There's no legal problems, gang affiliation, mental illness, drug and alcohol issues more than the usual. And it's still really challenging. Imagine if you're trying to do this by yourself, with some, with a whole host of those other problems, the wonder is that people aren't more messed up than they are. Yeah, absolutely. I get really angry though with heading now into the pointy end of the election. I'm getting really frustrated with the number of people. And when I say the number of people, our little friend Christopher Luxon, you're you're dead right on this. There is so much political capital there that they need to be grasping hold of, but they're not. And even there's been praise in the paper that, oh, they've not used the Kiritapu situation as a political football. If this were a man in the same situation, they potentially would have. Again, I'm not in her head. I mean, she'll be feeling awful, I'm sure of it. But at the same token, she is just another minister at a long line of exceptionally poor behaviour, which filters down from the top, and they have not led they have not provided boundaries. They've not provided mm. any form of good parenting. I mean, two words, Trevor Mallard. Um, I mean, one of the the biggest bullies in the house and the worst possible behaviour of any minister of the crown in this country's history. And what do they do? They give him a plum job in Dublin. Yeah, that guy should be what driving a message in a does warehouse. That send? You know, there's an, another theory of mine is the paradox of young politicians. You know, everyone thinks that they bring youthful thinking, but I think it attracts slightly narcissistic people who, you know, haven't integrated the shadows so it's easier for them to have those messianic complexes they get mentored by older politicians and that embeds a series of behaviors in them and because they're so busy talking about how great they are they never really take a good look at themselves and i mean kitty tapu allen will come back from this when she's older and uh, i think she could be a great new zealander agreed i'll, I think I'll say that once she's internalized yes. her shadow and she's she's no longer having to pat herself on the back the whole time and blame everyone else for anything that goes wrong. She could be a part of the solution, but um, those because student the, politicians, they're part of the problem. Because the level of potential that she has there is tremendous. And I think, I hope that she does learn from that. And whether or not it's in politics or whether or not she uses it in law, I don't know. But that resilience, it's about picking yourself up. And if there's anybody that can give a masterclass on resilience, it will be the person that just got 5% in the, the Roy Morgan poll yesterday. Mm, here yes. we come. We're talking about Winston Peters. If you haven't caught up with it, Roy Morgan's monthly poll dropped yesterday. And we saw a shift back from Labour. There was a three-point shift back from Labour and uh, an increase with National. And for the first time, uh, New Zealand first hit that 5% threshold. And also to top 
received 4% in that poll as well. Now, I've just spoken to Helen Houghton. Helen's a new Conservative Party leader. She's just been on the hustings. She's been really busy in her electorate in Christchurch. And one of the things that her people are telling her that this is the election of the minor parties. And the top leader, he's in Christchurch as well. I think he's standing in Islam. Will he probably win the seat? No, he won't. But there is a swell and a move for these smaller parties. And we're just following a trend that is being played out in countries around the world. I mean, the Spanish are now in deadlock uh, yeah. with another minor party just flipping a seat up there. So the overall societal swell away from these overtly Marxist ideas, and especially the cultural Marxist ideas that have been pervasive over the last five years, I think there is a little bit of an awakening of the populace. You know, the one fatal mistake I think our Kiri Tapu made is she actually forgot who employs her. Mm. And it isn't Chippy, and it isn't the Crown Services, it's us. Yeah. It was the voters of Tarafiri and East Coast. Those are the people who actually have her there. Um, yeah, well, and there's all those sayings around that. When the public knows everything about the government, there's freedom. When the government knows everything about the public, there's tyranny. And, you know, when politicians fear the public, there's freedom. When public fears politician, there's tyranny. And we've really, you know, swung hard toward that self-congratulatory, know-nothing, administrative, we-know-what's-best, patronising crap. On one side, we've got that. And on the other side... The perception, anyway, I think, is that we've got this corporate toadying kind of corporatist, soulless, detached from regular people kind of way of seeing the country. Mm. And, and you know, like those two ropes, if you follow them up, they meet at the World Economic Forum. If you join that Marxist government-based way of looking at things with, with corporatism, you get fascism. And so people are really understanding that they don't want to go towards that, I think. Yeah. And I mean, Christopher Luxon's told me twice he doesn't want my vote. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I'm anti that mandated vax without true um, informed consent and bodily autonomy. Oh. So if you're saying that he doesn't want my vote on that, and Peter Williams made some very good comments about a public meeting he went to in Wanaka where people said, why didn't you meet with the protesters? And he said, oh, well, we can uh, disagree without being disagreeable. And there was a bit of heckling. And he said, well, you know, if you don't like it, that's my answer. If you don't like it, vote for someone else. Well, be careful what you wish for, Christopher. Mm, people are feeling disillusioned, really, really disillusioned. I had a lovely lunch over the weekend. It was someone that I'd met. It was my first sort of speaking thing that I'd done after I'd started this job. And I was invited up for lunch. Were you? I was. Are you going to say well? It was here in Napier and it was sitting on a hilltop. It was the most perfect bluebird day. Honestly, one of those days that you would write sonnets about was so gorgeous. Sitting oh. up on the hill, looking out across the bay, there were two dozen people there. The most diverse, interesting group of people. Thank you so much to Andrew and Janet, the hosts, because you get gathered this incredible group there. And there were some people there from um, the lovely Alison Goodwin from NZDSOS through to um, my neighbours oh, down the road. She now. is lovely. Um, from, from my neighbours just down the road yeah. to uh, a whole bunch of people that I'd never met before, uh, uh, large business owners, uh, farmers, another farmer that I know from my other my, my day job life. And 
incredibly interesting group of people, somebody who actually works in the international uh, peace movement for for war prevention. So this incredible dynamic bunch. And to have several hours to be in an environment where you could speak openly and freely and there was lots of discussion and debate and ideas were being thrown around and and not everybody was on the same page on, on many issues, but what we were together and on the same page about was the fact that none of us felt that these conversations could happen in other than an environment like that. And what does that say about our society? That we've gotten to that point where censorship and self-censoring within a societal realm, because if you don't, like as you said, if you don't because you would disagree on one particular thing, like you disagreed on the mandates or you disagreed about taking the COVID jab, that you get applied and stuck with a label and put in the disagreeable bunch. Or framed as being dangerous and an enemy to public health. And, and, you know, there's a deliberate, I think that the lack of vision in in what the National Party is saying, certainly in in Labour, like if you try and get a vision out of it, it's like, oh, equity. Or, um, well, tacitly, Māori to have veto over any decision that's made via co-governance. But I think that lack of a common vision is deliberate. The way I often think about it is, I don't know if you've done any uh, whitewater kayaking, Marie, but... I you know that that's a rhetorical question. You do know the answer <laughs> to that, don't you, Matt? I've got a mental vision of you doing it, but it doesn't. Yeah, no. I'm not sure that you have. First time I really had a go at it, at some challenging white water was uh, right in the back of uh, a river in Venezuela with a great mate of mine, and uh, we were going, uh, I think, for two weeks. So we had fully loaded up kayaks, and we actually forgot our mattresses, so it was kind of uncomfortable sleeping on it. But and and we also forgot helmets. And there were anacondas and jaguars and stuff. Something I learned after the first couple of sections is when you, you're flowing on the river and you're seeing this big whitewater section coming up, you really don't want to go towards it. It's much the same way as, I guess, people who are getting shot at. It's really counterintuitive to run towards it. But you've got to. You've got to paddle towards it because if you just sit there floating along on events, you, you can't manoeuvre because you've got no speed in the water. You've got to paddle towards it as fast as you can so you've got the momentum to steer around rocks or you know dodge things or find the channel. I think there's a good parallel to be had with having a vision for where we're going as a society and getting some momentum up to it. So I've always advocated, well, look, you know, let's just make full employment around an objective of, say, replanting rivers, restoring nature or producing food. And that momentum then allows us to do other things. But if we're just sitting there going, oh, everyone's mean to me because I like wearing a dress or, oh, you know, people are racist or, oh, the world's about to catch fire and boiling. I noticed there's the latest phraseology. Uh, Yeah. It just absolutely makes us, puts us entirely at the mercy of events that, lo and behold, the people who are owning the media are often instigating. It's a way of disempowering us, and we've got to get a vision. We've got to form a common vision, and we've got to start moving because there's a lot to be done. There is a tremendous amount to be done, and it is all, again, about those parallel structures. It's about creating something new. And I remember talking to Peter Mortlock, you know, about a month or so ago from City Impact Mm. Church. That was a really good interview too. I I changed my opinion of that guy. I I thought he came across so well. 
Well, and isn't this really interesting? Because as someone who doesn't sit within the Christian world, I don't know a lot about the Christian world. I dabbled a bit as a teenager, but it's not where I come from. Just as people who don't agree with taking the jab slapped with an ad hominem, so too have so many within that modern church movement. Yeah. It was really interesting to hear them talking about how when they were helping with the floods, they wouldn't show any of a house of breakthrough. And I've, I, I must apologize to Norm McLeod. I've I called him Norm McLean, who's another friend of mine in Gisborne. He and Peter Mortlock's churches, really, and no doubt Brian Tamaki as well. Yeah, um, and it's the ch- and charity, really though. This is mm. the thing. You don't actually hear about all this genuine, incredible charity work that is actually going on behind the scenes. You only hear about it if there's government involvement and some political capital that goes along with it. The rest of it, it's like it's completely invisible, but it's going on. Mm. And they're actually achieving something. They're not in it for the glory and the PR. They're just getting down, rolling up their sleeves, doing the work. And as I said to Peter, you've created these parallel networks. And how how long has this been going on for? And he's, you know, best part of two plus decades in terms of education and all of these different different areas. He said, because we just had to and just got on and did it. And wow. What a, what a, well, exactly. A little less hooey and a lot more dewy going on. A little on, bit um, less waha and a bit more kaha. Another point you brought up, looking at the, the trio of opinion pieces from the Sunday paper, Sunday Hero. Mm. Of course, Shane uh, came out for his mate Kitty and was like, don't be mean to Don't be mean to Kitty. I didn't even read that. Oh, no, don't. You know, you didn't miss anything. Heather Duplessy Allen, though, she, as I mentioned before, her and Stephen Joyce were one of the few that have been critical with what has gone on. And the other thing that happened that got overshadowed with the bad behaviour, was the former Revenue Minister, David Parker, tossing his toys. Mm. Big toy. Yeah. He threw his calculator out of the cot. Yeah, Thomas Piketty's book on the subject for years. That's a French you know, neo-Marxist economist that he, he just adores. And if you look through Thomas Piketty's ideas, they're Marxist. <laughs> yeah. That's, Well, speaking of those, you just needed to travel a little bit further down the page to my favourite young person of the year, Ajeneel. I didn't even read that either. I did. And the reason I read it is that I agreed with the headline. I thought, it's a bit of a rough day when I'm agreeing with something that he's written. But social media is not as powerful as a vote. Yes, agree. Yeah. So I thought, oh, this is promising. I'm going to dive into this. However, despite the spike in young people interested in politics, we are left with a conservative government afraid of upsetting the status quo. Mm. When he is calling the most progressive, neo-Marxist, culturally Marxist, left-wing government that we've had in this country's history. Show me the progress. A conservative, progress. <laughs> conservative government, you know you've got problems. The government that comes into power determines whether Aotearoa will take bold climate action, pass legislation to protect vulnerable groups from hate speech, introduce fair tax systems, improve student housing quality, lower rent and housing prices. The list is endless. Now, what was really interesting about that list is that Chanel obviously doesn't keep up with what voters are really concerned about. And it was nothing on that list. Oh, the bold climate action. What would borrow more money and send it through corrupt 
corrupt financial markets to nuclear and power, st- yeah. power station building nations. So Chanel had some numbers. As of June this year, only 59.71% of 18 to 24-year-olds are enrolled to vote, whereas 96.87% of 60 to 64-year-olds were enrolled. 97.5% of 65 to 69-year-olds were enrolled. And 99.48% of people aged over 70 are enrolled to vote. The statistics are staggering considering 18 to 24-year-olds are the second largest eligible voting body after the 70-plus group. There is hope, though. The Greens are advocating for climate action, the fair tax system and quality of affordable housing and protection for the marginalised communities, and Te Pāti Māori have similar policies. Again, on the list, and if you're looking for some of these issues, and I think I sent this to you, Radio New Zealand have got their Flourish Data piece of information. They did it during COVID. They've done one for the election. So they've gone and taken all the polls and they've taken all the the data there. We talked about a few, about a month or so ago around what people are concerned about. And they've gone and placed that into some really, really, really good graphs for you to look and map at. And they are great. And so one of those is the data around the data stuff that is around what are the concerns that people have coming into the election. And one of the things it shows is how way back in, I think was 2010, where crime sat, and you watch that crime uh, line just go up, and it's now the number two issue behind the cost of living. And it just shows you where all these issues bounce around. It is worth hunting out. It is a really, really good piece of data. They've done a great job. Now, the only thing I pray for is they don't stop putting this data out, which is what they did during COVID, once it started telling a story that they didn't want to tell. And things got all magicked away. But at the moment, it is there. And I feel like saying to Chanel, oh, sweets, you need to pop on and have a look at that. Because obviously that's what you're worried about and that's what you think people should be worried about. But the reality of it is, is that you obviously don't have to worry about feeding children. You don't have to worry about the cost of putting a roof over your head. You don't have to worry about uh, whether or not you can afford to put petrol in the car or get those extra groceries or whatever you need, the the device that you have to organise for the kid next year to go to school. Yeah. I mean, even though people are worrying about it more, there's probably, I don't see the kind of analysis of the implications of that increasing concern about crime that there really should be. It's not just people getting ripped off or feeling unsafe. What it is, is the degradation of our high trust society. A high trust society is a prosperous society. Once you start losing that trust between citizens, it just calcifies all of these things. You get poorer. Well, the social contract was a wee bit wobbly prior to 2020. Wow. And then I mean, Dear Leader came in and lit a bonfire under it, in my opinion. She I completely mean, destroyed yeah. it. Well, and, um, and again, you can get yourself really hot under the collar if you think, did she do it deliberately? You see, know, I, you know, my stomach also won't let me go there, to be quite yeah. honest with you. How often during that period of time were we told that correlation doesn't doesn't mean causation? I mean, it was drummed into us from 2021 when a certain thing got rolled out and people were, you know, dropping like flies and even with the excess deaths. And let's normalise the fact that it's okay for 18-year-olds to keel over and uh, have a heart attack in the middle of a a practice. Well, I mean, that's yeah, I mean, just quite normal. You were saying before about crime. Um, the crime stats are up something by about 22%, but the n- prison numbers have dropped by almost exactly the same number. What a coincidence. Coincidence? 
Yeah. And for me, I, I'll, I'll say this at least once every second show. Again, it's not necessarily that we're saying, hey, this is this is the correct way to see things. My primary concern is, hey, we should be talking about this. We should be talking about the fact that New Zealand's excess death rate is in lockstep with the vaccination rate. If you look at the OECD numbers, you know, we're up kind of 25.8% above where we should be. Now, 10% is, is extremely high. That's a worry. The fact that it's not in the media is an even bigger worry. Uh, an even bigger worry. Very concerning. And, and you know, I'd welcome, I've heard David Seymour saying there's no excess deaths. That's concerning, but don't just um, say it's a conspiracy theory. Let's talk about the data. Mm. Let's talk about, you know, if you were wrong and you found out you were wrong, would you come clean? I, I don't think these guys are at the point where they would. They're going to ride this all the way down. I see Sky News is coming right out and publicizing, you know, that. Uh, Sherry piece. Yeah. Mm. So, saying, well, yeah, it, it uh, looks like it probably was a lab leak now. Mm. You know? Yeah, that was front page of the Australian, which I think was while you were there, wasn't it? And yeah, and they Sky News were followed, followed it up on uh, Sherry a couple of nights ago, and yeah, and there has been there was a hot. If you want to look that up on um, YouTube, there's a hot mic incident with that as well. It's interesting you bring that up because just rolling back to Winston with the numbers on that poll, and that those numbers that poll was taken before. His announcement in Whangarei. Now, the announcement in Whangarei was a full inquiry around the COVID. Not uh, led by politicians. Not led by politicians, exactly. Because Not having politicians define the uh, the scope of it, which is always the way yeah. they kill any actual uh, conclusions that they might not like. And the difficulty, of course, is that when you, it's as you said, if you're somebody with that political capital that with, who's in the system right now and you've been so voracious around your positioning, how do you roll that position back? If you're Seymour, how do you roll it back? If you're Luxon, how do you roll it back? Well, at the moment, they're not rolling it back. They seem to be doubling down. Mr. I don't, don't vote for me then. Meanwhile, we've got the equivalent of a jumbo jet full of Kiwis crashing every three weeks with the loss of everyone on board and excess deaths. No can, one's talking talk about, about it. Stop gaslighting us. Stop mm. pissing on us and telling us it's raining. Mm. So to that, I pulled out a book, and I showed you the book before we got started. I pulled out a book. I read this. I re just reread it. I read it when it came out in 2020. I just reread it recently because I'm desperately trying to get the author on. I'm We're... We're fishing at the moment. We're bouncing backwards and forwards. And it is called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Ooh. Sense by Gad yeah. Sad. Gad is great. He's a Lebanese-Canadian who is a professor of psychology, and he does marketing and behaviours. But there's a little passage here I want to read you about a concept that he calls ostrich parasitic syndrome. Of course, the desire to deny reality extends far beyond science. The human capacity for deception and self-deception is enormous. In fact, some scientists suspect one reason our intelligence evolved, as it has, is so we can successfully manipulate others. In the service of such manipulative intent, we have evolved a parallel proclivity to self-deceive, which protects us from betraying our duplicity. The first step in being a good liar is believing the lie. Mm. Well, again, they, they've weaponized 
that even further because, you know, I was looking up, oh, the World Weather Attribution Group, and I was trying to find out more about them. You can't find out, you can't find anything that's critical of them. And we've already got, it looks like, a news guard set up to filter out anything. And and everyone, of course, remember Dear Leader saying, how can we fight climate change if people don't even believe in it? And so, you know, she's busy making sure that we can't have access to that information because how can she do what she's going to do if we don't think what she wants us to think? I've really noticed in the past couple of months, especially, that the the search engines are just not giving contrarian views. Yeah. I, well, look, I think it's been like that for a very, very long time. Yeah, it's been getting worse. Mm-hmm. It certainly is getting worse. But you know, with speaking of that, I mean, the other great line that we didn't get to in Heather Duplessy-Allen's uh, column was she quotes a first-term MP felt courageous enough to stand up in caucus and address the Kerry Allen car crash, telling them, we can't pretend that we haven't known about this for two years. It's even more telling that someone then leaked to the media that that had happened. I've been playing a game with myself, I mentioned, where where I'm watching Chris Hipkins get interviewed. You can try this too, dear listeners. If you see him get asked a tough question, watch him swallow. It's like he's gulping down a dead rat. It's his tell that he's about to talk crap. It's great. Actually, I read that line as well. And that I wonder when that backbencher stood up because, of course, the Labour list came out. And in light of the current polls, there is sort of a line in the sand at around 40 yeah. where anything below that is looking like it's not going to head into Fra- Parliament. Fran Sullivan uh, made a really good point about that. She said, the 20 or so MPs who know they stand to go out on the tide the same way they came in at the 2020 election are not going to rock the boat politically in the meantime in the rather naive belief that keeping their heads down mean they will be saved through a high-list ranking at this year's election. The upshot is that policies which should have been vigorously contested within the Labour caucus before being promoted as government policy weren't. And you notice the same people responsible for that disconnection of dissent have done it to us too, which is what I was just talking about. Yeah, exactly. It's like turning the alarms off in a mind. Which is why is that backbencher one of those 20? Where are these leaks coming from? Maybe people have got relatives that have got vax injuries. Maybe maybe it's starting to weigh on their con- conscience. I mean, I, I saw Chippy take an especially big swallow and say, uh, Labor's got a really deep talent pool. <laughs> it's like as deep as a car park puddle in summer. Oh. It was in 2017. It hasn't gotten deeper. If he had a talent pool as deep as one of the potholes in the Napier Taupo, maybe he's in with the bull's rule. But <laughs> no, certainly not not from that perspective. And that's just it. Stephen Joyce summed it up when he described, he opened it with when he was rattling around Avery House and he would, you know, go upstairs to the ninth floor and you'd have a discussion and you would talk about where things were going and things were great. But then he talked about when the Longy-Douglas relationship broke down. And again, that's why this theme of correlation versus causation He didn't out and out come and say it. I heard Hipkins pressed on it yesterday morning around how really is his relationship with Grant Robertson? Because we know that that is what Joyce was alluding to, that that relationship is broken down. 
after the captain's call that Chippy has made to turf the wealth tax to the curb, and you know that Grant had been working on that for a really long time, so he's not happy. And then you've got David Parker, you know, tossing his calculator out of the cot. It seems that inner sanctum is not a very happy place right now, and you don't want that, you know, 70-odd days up from the election. The fact that Labour and National are still neck and neck, it never ceases to amaze me. I think that National uh, national should be ashamed of that. There was a big uh, article about Christopher Luxon, and uh, it didn't really say much new. You know, Luxon has a sunny view of capitalism and the capacity of multinational corporations to be a force for good. That's what I was talking about before, about people see him as a corporate drone. Mm. And uh, if you've ever worked in a corporate environment, you know that, it uh, weeds out creativity at the bottom level. So by the time you get to the top, you're pretty sure to not be that creative. He pushes back when asked whether his pursuit of success in the corporate realm was consistent with his maxim to always serve a higher purpose in life. He says, uh, you know, would he have worked for, say, a tobacco or mining company? No, 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 I could never do that. No, I think businesses have a role to play in society to strengthen the society they're part of. He's obviously forgotten that his campaign manager was a tobacco salesman. But that's okay because yep. he's hired Mary Lambie now. To yeah, how's that going to go? Mm, it's it going to make be. him more self-conscious, I think. I have met Mary. I know her. She's, um, she's a really lovely lady. With his time spent in the corporate world, you kind of would have thought that he would have had this bedded down by now. But obviously, as you, I mean, as we all know, he doesn't. So I'll be intrigued to see what happens because I've actually used Mary's professional services in my other life. So I know what she's capable of and she's her and her husband are very, very talented. I will be waiting to see what changes there could be that could be influenced by them. I'll be intrigued. The big thing that's always highlighted is his lack of appeal to women. As I said, the big problem is there's no political capital to be had making women accountable for their actions. So, you know, I don't know how he's going to get get around that. Oh, look, you just need to, you know, stick Thomas the Tank engine on and uh, look, it's the bottom really pops. Well, I mean, you know, anyway, sorry. I'd stick with my my suggestion to him that features tell, benefits sell. I'm still hearing him say, you know, we're going to get in and fix this. And it's like, okay, and and then what? Yeah, how? Again, this uh, release of the Productivity Commission's report, that if you read between the lines and and you weed out their reflexive relapses into just Marxist orthodoxy, it's education. And so you could Mm. say, doing the basics brilliantly, it's like, hey, look, if you get a kid who goes through school and at the end of it can't read or do maths, He's uh, basically going to be scraping the bottom of the barrel for a tremendously unappealing job. If that kid learns to read and fulfills their potential in maths, the world can be their oyster. Exactly. Anything else grab you? Oh, you know, look, I had a week uh, last week where I didn't open a newspaper. Good for you. I'm not as match fit as I might have been. It was quite interesting seeing Mitch McConnell uh, in America. Again, you know, we get very CNN-esque reporting of American politics. What, um, looking a little vacant in front of a microphone. Just the uh, geriocracy that uh, is going on in, in uh, the States. Dianne Feinstein, almost 90, 
wheeled off in a wheelchair in a hospital won't give up a seat. And, and you know, in years to come, we'll look at the baby boomers from a greater distance. But like you and I both have baby boomers we love and, you know, our parents and all that. Mm. But a generation that was in love with youth and idolized uh, youth in a way that had never been done before shouldn't come as any surprise to us that they, they're terrified of dying. And I think that's why they were so compliant with the, well, yeah, uh, with the measures. Yeah. You know, you've got these basically senile old fools who have been bought and paid for just still in those positions mm. where um, we need other people. My dear mother, who I loved bits when all of this was going down, because of course you can imagine listeners. I mean, this is why this job is so good for me because I get to rant and rave to all of you and it gets it out. So instead of Mr. just you and me ranting and raving. Yeah, instead of you and I ranting and raving, Mr. Marie and Mrs. Marty having to deal with us ranting and raving, <laughs> uh, which happens a lot. So I got quite ranty, as you can imagine, during that time. And Huffing and puffing away. Yeah. And, and my mum, bless her heart, said something to me that really stuck with me. And it was actually even before the rollouts and all of that kind of stuff. And, and she said to me, darling, she said, all your father and I want to do now is live a peaceful life. And I think that there are a lot of people of their ilk that have got to that age and stage where they just want to live a peaceful life and they will do whatever they think. That yeah, someone I just tells want to get to things do. back to normal. Actually, I yeah. will tell you, when I was in Australia, I caught up with a couple of mates. One of them is agonising because he's trying to buy an apartment opposite Central Park. He's just got a job with the world's biggest law firm and he needs um, twice as much money in the bank as he's, is the cost of the apartment in order to, to get in there. So he needs 10 million bucks in the bank. And I was talking to them about The Voice and I was saying, man, you, you know, you guys are getting lined up. I was sort of giving them my various theories about, you know, how Indigenous peoples are being used as a stick to mm. delegitimize the, the presence and take the fight out of people for their country. He said, oh, you know, I mean, I think it's fair enough. They get a voice and this guy's a lawyer. You know, I said, mm. you know, once they put this legislation in the Constitution, you then get, you say, yeah, but it's got to be tested in the courts. And I say, yeah, then you're going to get activist judges setting all sorts of crazy precedents, and it's not going to help actual Aboriginal people, a lot of whom don't even want it. You're going to form a, you're going to form an activist group that are going to cause terrible division and will actually thrive on poor outcomes for Aborigines as a way to beat people over the head with a stick. And they were just kind of, yeah, just wanted a peaceful life. You know, just, oh, well, it's, you know, we should do something for them. That's the thing that we've been trapped by. It's kind of like, well, do you care about, you know, if granny dies or not? No, it's weaponized kindness. Yeah, yeah. It's weaponized kindness. And then shut down the debate. Yeah. 70 odd days ish to the election. (laughs) There's going to be lots to happen. I'm still having a little giggle, though, actually. Here's the other thing I'm having a giggle at is, as you know, uh, Nashi stood down because there's so many of these Labour. MPs that have disappeared in the last little bit. I mean, what, five cabinet ministers? It's, you know, far out. It's a, it's a very, very busy revolving door in that beehive. Anywho, our Nashi isn't um, standing again. So we've got a new uh, Nashi clone because obviously the Labour caucus decided to keep hold of Napier. They needed to install a candidate, which essentially is Stuart Nashi. Nashi too. Yeah, he is Nashi too. <laughs> I haven't been able to discern anything about him that is different from, from Stuart. So I thought, okay, well, yeah, look, that must be an aberration. No, 
No, not an aberration at all because in East Coast, I mean, our kiritapu has gone and what they've gone and done is obviously they believe that to win and retain East Coast, you must have a brown gay MP. They've dusted off Tamati. Tamati's not going to go quietly into retirement and he is going to to stand up in East Coast um, for kiri because of the quote-unquote, uh, what did he call it, tragedy of what had happened. Hmm. Tragedy to whom exactly? But anyway, uh, I think his father was. Is it um, his father that's up in our direction? Nadi Bro, yeah. Yeah, so I definitely know he's got roots to the area. But I did actually have a little giggle. You know, first they did a a Napier clone, and now they've just done an East Coast clone. Yeah. uh, Because that's obviously what they think the winning formula is. Jesus, they, uh, they, I think, running out of ideas. I do believe they're like they're like the pigeon pecking the button to get a. A treat. A bit of bread, yeah. yeah. They do have that thing. Well, what's good for me is good for Labour, and what's good for Labour is good for New Zealand. So, <laughs> uh, hey, look, we want to hear what you guys think about all of this. Email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio or 2057 is the number that you can uh, flick us a text to. We love hearing from you. We've had some fantastic feedback. Actually, I flicked you a bit of feedback yesterday. Martin? And we've had some wonderful feedback, actually. This one is from Tracy. Hope your day is going well. Please pass on that I love Media Matters with Marie and Marty, the dynamic duo. I could listen to them all day long. Tracy, you are far too kind. We're spoiled for choice here with RCR. Very grateful to have such high-caliber talent and guests. So, you know, we do appreciate it. And there was a whole bunch more I sent you while you were away to, to keep you feeling me chipper. Up, keep my mind on the job. Oh, thanks. Exactly. And, and of course, political planner, I sat in for you last Friday. Yeah, didn't say much but when I did. I got a bit ranty. So I think it's time that I hand the mantle back and yeah, well. uh, you'll be back with the team on Friday. Oh, good. Well, thanks to Tane for uh, for standing in for me on Media Matters last week. Yeah, um, bless him. Tane did a great job. It was so, it was, it was so sweet. He, he was, <clears throat> I have to say, Marty, he did show us up very organised. Yeah, right. Yeah, oh. not, not not like us old exes, us Gen Xs. We were like, you know, we were a bit more wing and fly by the seat of our pants. But uh, yeah, I have to admit, I was like, wow, honey, this is actually really impressive. I might give him a call and ask him what he does. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, yeah. He's very organised, much more organised than you and I. Hey, look, don't disappear. Uh, Woke News of the Week is still yet to come. And again, if you have any feedback, inbox at realitycheck.radio in 2057. Thank you as always, Marty, and we'll catch up again next week. Yeah, thanks, mate. Have a good week, everyone. Take care. It's time time for the Woke News of the Week. It's time to take a look at some news with a slightly more cultural bent here internationally. First up, bye-bye Yeezy. Adidas plans to release more of its Yeezy shoes in August. Despite the controversy surrounding rapper Kanye West, who used to be known as Ye, and designed the Yeezy shoes, the footwear remains popular. Adidas had stopped selling Yeezy shoes last year due to Kanye's controversial behaviour, but later resumed sales in May, which helped reduce the company's expected losses. The company will donate a portion of the proceeds from Yeezy sales to organisations fighting discrimination, including racism and anti-Semitism, though the exact amount is not specified. 
Some Yeezy shoes sold in North America will include a blue pin symbolizing support for the foundation to combat anti-Semitism, a possible attempt to placate the inevitable backlash from far-left extremists. Despite the past controversy, Yeezy's shoes continue to be in demand and sell at high prices on resale sites. American conservative student wins lawsuit. And Southern Illinois University has agreed to pay $80,000 to a Christian student named Maggie DeJong after she filed a lawsuit claiming that the school silenced her conservative views. DeJong, who graduated from the art therapy counselling program, said she was punished when other students complained about her expressing her conservative political and religious beliefs. The university settled the lawsuit this week and will now provide mandatory First Amendment training to three professors. The statement also requires the university to revise its policies to welcome students with varying political, religious and ideological views into the art therapy program. De Jong has been banned from any communication with the three other students who complained about her views. The university's chancellor, James Minor, stated that the SIUE is committed to protecting First Amendment rights and does not support censorship. Oompa Loompa. In the upcoming movie Wonka, British actor Hugh Grant has been cast as an Oompa Loompa, a character from Roald Dahl's story Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Some people with dwarfism, like actor George Coppin, have expressed concerns about this casting choice. In the past adaptation of the stories, Oompa Loompas were portrayed by actors with dwarfism. However, in the new movie, Grant, who is much taller at 5'10", plays an Oompa Loompa. Some actors with dwarfism feel that opportunities are being taken away from them by casting taller actors in such roles. They believe they should at least be given the option to audition for these parts, even if they don't like them. The debate has sparked discussions about representation and opportunities for actors with dwarfism within the film industry. From California now, there are ructions over reparations. California is considering reparation plans with proposals from both the state legislator and San Francisco. The California Reparations Task Force submitted its final recommendations, including guidance for apologies and cash payments, while San Francisco's African-American Reparations Advisory Committee proposed a $5 million lump sum payment and additional yearly payments to eligible individuals for 250 years, among other benefits. However, critics, including former San Francisco supervisor Tony Hall, argue that the plans exceeded budgetary limitations, with estimated costs of $175 billion for the city and potential costs exceeding $800 billion for the state, far beyond available budgets. They believe the proposals are unrealistic and unaffordable, risking social unrest and legal challenges due to the potential discrimination claims. The debate surrounding reparations remains complex and contentious. And finally, from the gender-affirming care for minors hearings, former NCAA Division I swimmer Paula Scanlon testified before the House Judiciary Subcommittee, sharing her experiences as a member of the University of Pennsylvania's women's team alongside transgender swimmer Leah Thomas. During the hearing on gender-affirming care for minors, Scanlon revealed the impact of Thomas's presence in the locker room on her as a survivor of sexual assault. She described how the university's official disregarded the team's concerns and insisted Thomas's inclusion was a not negotiable. 
Scanlon expressed that the situation was far beyond competition, affecting women's safe spaces. She highlighted the destruction of free speech surrounding the discussions about women's spaces and expressed concern for female athletes who had lost opportunities due to this issue. The hearing focuses on the dangers and due process violations of gender-affirming care and parental roles in such decisions. That's been the work news of the week. If you've got a news story you want me to cover, make sure you send that link along to inbox at realitycheck.radio via email or text it to us at 2057. Would you like to be a part of Reviving Honest Media? At RCR, we're on a mission to do just that. We report on critical, censored stories and hold those in positions of power to account. As Paul Brennan says, it's a good mission. Now there's an easy way to support RCR and at the same time receive some amazing benefits. Our Foundation Membership Club is here. As a member, you'll enjoy a host of exclusive benefits, including a daily bite-sized news digest, a backstage pass to RCR, and discounted merchandise. Find out all you need to know about our Foundation membership now at www.realitycheck.radio. Thank you for joining me for another dose of counterculture and keep the feedback coming. Inbox realitycheck.radio or drop us a text. 2057 is the number. Remember, if you like the great content we bring you each week, please feel free to donate as we're funded by the people for the people. Make sure you look out for the RCR Foundation Members Club. It's just launched this week. There are great benefits such as mates rates on merch, exclusive email news content, and backstage passes to Zooms with myself and all our other wonderful RCR co-hosts like Peter Williams, who's up here next on Reality Check Radio with his ponderings and even more great music. I'm signing off with a song that was from my secret Turn It Up and Sing Out Loud file. I hope you do the same. And if you sign up as a foundation member, I'll be seeing you this Sunday. Otherwise, I'll be back here next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio.